Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. BFT. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Well, we have some new details on the Ime Udoka situation. Is that what we call it? A situation? The entanglement in Boston? And the details presented make it look like it will be difficult for Ime Odoka to get back to coaching. We'll talk about that. I want to talk concussions off the top of the show, like everybody else is talking, but in a little different way. Plus, I'll give you 12 things that you need to know for the weekend. Great guests on today's show. For those of you who uh, tune in regularly, you know we get the guests. Max Meyer will be with us from Caesars Sportsbook. He is the source who uh, keeps telling us that the Pac-12 games are getting big-time action in Vegas. Why are the Pac-12 games suddenly so popular among betters? I've got a variety of theories. I'll bet you have theories as well. But we will drill down today at 3.30 with Max Meyer, Caesars Sportsbook. We'll also go to Salt Lake City because Oregon State's going there. Bill Riley of ESPN 700 will be with us late in the 4 o'clock hour to talk about that. Anna will be along we gotta, we're going to ask what your peeve is on today's show. I'm going to tell you what you should be watching over the weekend. We got it all for you. Plus, we'll recap our Pac-12 picks for the weekend. But uh, some new news out on the Ime Yudoka front. Uh, Adrian Wojnarowski of ESPN reporting that the law firm that probed the Celtics coach, Ime Yudoka, found that crude language in his dialogue with a free female subordinate prior to the start of an improper workplace relationship, factored into the severity of the one-year suspension. Also, the investigative findings found that Udoka used crude language uh, with other individuals, and it was deemed especially concerning coming from a workplace superior. Uh, it looks like the pathway for Ime Udoka to get back to coaching may be a difficult one, but uh, this is where we stand today. I want to kick this around a little bit. And, you know, look, we all sort of, we all sort of figured out that uh, there must be something more going on when Ime Odoka was suspended for a year for having a, quote-unquote, improper workplace relationship and making uh, unwanted advances. But the investigative findings uh, basically described verbiage on Udoka's part that was deemed especially concerning the power dynamic, we've talked about this, Anna talked about it in particular, that when you've got a superior having an improper relationship with a staff member, the, you know, the, it, this is why you have to report these relationships to human resources. But last week the Celtics said that the suspension was a product of multiple violations of team policies. And they also said that the Celtics won't stand in Adoka's way should he have the chance to become a coaching candidate elsewhere. So there are some teams, I guess, that have inquired with the Boston Celtics about gathering a preliminary understanding of why he was suspended. So it's really interesting. Udoka will also get a cut in his salary during the suspension. 
He is enduring some public humiliation and some damage to his reputation, of course. But, uh, you know, he had long appeared destined to be like the Celtics franchise coach. Like this dynasty, this era after Brad Stevens would belong to Ime Adoka. And now it looks like uh, they will move on and probably in another year when the suspension is is lifted, we'll move all the way on. In the interim, Joe Mazzula has been promoted to interim coach. Uh, he is well-regarded inside the organization. I disagree with Adrian Wojnarowski's uh, classification of Mazzula in his piece. He said he was well-regarded outside the organization as well. He really isn't. He has a uh, domestic violence conviction on his record. He has a couple of other arrests on his record. I think it's really tone-deaf for the Boston Celtics to, you know, st- put their foot down with Ime Adoka, and then go, hey, we're going to promote Joe Mazzula to the interim coach position. And uh, they're promoting essentially somebody who's got some domestic violence, uh, you know, interactions on his on his record, and this isn't good. So uh, crude remarks. And I immediately thought when I heard that, I thought, well, I want to know what they consider crude remarks. Like, I'm just trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. But then again, I told a friend, I said, I also know that I'm going to see what those crude remarks are if they ever release them, and I'm going to wish I never saw them. So that's kind of where we are with this stuff. It's really disappointing that Udoka didn't behave professionally. Um, you know, whatever else he did, whatever else he said, we don't know. But uh, the Boston Celtics apparently had a reason to give Ime Udoka a one-year suspension. Steven, you're back in studio. Sean is there as well. Uh, we got a great Friday show, great lineup. We'll talk some college football, but let's start with Ime Adoka, and then I want to pivot into the the uh, concussion protocol and the claims about the Miami Dolphins. But let's start with Adoka. Is is he hireable by anybody else? Could would the Celtics get their wish? Meaning, would another team come in and hire him away and take this problem away? I know that I wouldn't want him as my coach, right? And if it's the situation where he's using his position in the organization as a power move over people like that's not something I want to be a part of I think it would be very hard to convince a fan base that that is the correct kind of person that you want leading your team out on the court and he's a great coach Uh, he proved that again this last season in his first year as a coach but man that's a bad look to have to use that power for evil right and so I just think I think it's going to be tough for any team to really convince a fan base to say, you know what, he's this good of a coach. We're willing to wipe the slate clean and give him a second chance. This is one of those things I feel like one shot and you're done, man. He's never going to be a head coach again. Uh, I'm I'm pretty certain of that. Uh, you think about the noise that was made last offseason with, with people like Chauncey Billups, with people like Jason Kidd, and those are for incidents that happened longer ago and for incidents that were less in the news. Um, you know, this has been a very loud and very public deal. It's made a ton of noise with how long his suspension is, and for that reason, no team in their right mind should hire him. Uh, or I, I don't think they will hire him either. I think think at best he's a top assistant. I, I want to I want to believe you, Sean. I want to I want to line up with you and go. Hey, he's not hireable. I wouldn't. And I agree with Steven. I wouldn't want him as my coach. But we're looking at a professional sports world where Deshaun Watson was facing you know some pretty serious allegations, and you know there's just, just takes one team. Like it, you know, is there a team out there that would lower its threshold for this and ignore public sentiment? I don't know. And, and is there a difference between a player and a coach in your mind? Yeah, I think it's the, I think it's the player and the coach is the difference there, John. Because I'm with Sean. Like, I want to believe it that 
he's never going to get a chance. But you're right. Like we've seen over time, sports sometimes is the more like more important thing than ethical things, which is so disappointing. But I think the difference is that he's a coach and he's supposed to be the leader of the whole team and the leader of the organization where when you're a player, you're making more of an impact on the field, on the court. So I do think that like as the head coach, like especially in the NBA, right? Like you don't have, I mean, yes, coaching does matter, but in the NBA, it's more about talent and how good you are as a team. So I think if it was a player, it would be a different situation. I think he would still be on the team, but since he is the coach, I think it's easier to find another person who was just as good X's and O's wise as Ime Udoka. I, I don't think it's fair or accurate to use the Deshaun Watson situation as a president here because it's a completely different league. And you have to ask yourself, is is the NBA the same as the NFL uh, history-wise when it comes to handling some of these situations? To me, the answer is no. I feel like the NFL's got a, a murkier and darker past of, of allowing some of these situations than the NBA. So I'm not sure, you know, just because things have gotten by in the NFL that it would it, it would be the same in the NBA. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I mean, look, I think there's some character issues across sports. Like we've seen guys struggle with drug use, domestic violence. Of course, Ray Rice comes to mind when I when I think about the NFL, but or Aaron Hernandez. You know, we've got some guys that are like that. But we have seen like Gilbert Arenas. We have seen Antoine Walker. We've, you know, here in Portland, I think we kind of held the trademark for a while on misbehaving. To the point where, like, when Sebastian Telford took a gun on a plane, we all kind of went, well, at least it's not drugs or it's not dogfighting. So I think we've looked the other way sometimes in the NBA in a different way because I think the guaranteed contracts in the NBA, we all sort of accept, hey, the teams are stuck with the players. But I think there's, I think that there is a lowering of the standards that happens uh, across sports. And I think, you know, teams and franchises lose their moral compass all the time. Deshaun Watson, the reason I think that's a parallel is, you know, there were no criminal charges filed in the case. There was a civil suit. I expect there will probably be a civil suit in the Boston Celtics case with Ime Udoka. I believe probably one or more of those staff members is probably going to sue the Boston Celtics and sue Udoka for whatever happened. But there's not going to be any criminal charges there. I do think there's a difference in a player versus a coach because what do we do? We look to the coach for guidance. We look to the coach for setting a tone and having control of the locker room and, you know, making management decisions. We want that coach to be ethical. We want that coach to be a good decision maker. And I don't think Amy Odoka is instilling any confidence right now with whatever happened. That said, I think it's too hot to touch right now in a league, especially the NBA, in a league that it continually is saying, hey, we value women. Women are important. You know, uh, we, we crack down on the Dallas Mavericks. We crack down on the Phoenix Suns. Uh, you know, the Clippers thing, that was that was an untenable situation. We made the we made Donald Sterling sell the team. I don't think with a straight face you can do those things, and then you can say, hey, whatever Ime Odoka did in Boston doesn't matter. We'll take him in Cleveland or Sacramento or whatever the job may be. I think he could probably coach again. I don't think he could be a head coach again. And I won't be surprised if uh, he goes away for a little bit, too. And, and I think the right move here is for him to step back. I think there needs to be some kind of public acknowledgement of the wrongdoings uh there needs to be something more than just the statement that he put out i think people need to hear from him uh you know his side of the story and uh you know what he's going to do to kind of rectify this and maybe fix himself but i think in the end i think the public likes a good comeback story i just don't know if you can come back depending on what was said again 
I, when I saw this crude remarks, I went, okay, I need to know, like, you know, how crude, like, what are we talking about? Was he, was he basically, uh, you know, coercing a underling? Was he, was he just being rude? Was he being vulgar, toxic? What? I don't know. But again, I know that once we see that stuff, like every other time that we get details later, I really, I always regret seeing what I saw or hearing what I heard. And this just isn't good for Ime Adoka. This isn't good for the Celtics. Uh, coming up, though, I want to turn towards the Miami Dolphins. Uh, it is a uh, interesting case and a possibly a disappointing case. The NFL Players Association looking into the Miami Dolphins. What happened last night on the field? Did it go back to last Sunday? We'll kick it around next. Plus, we got a big guest coming on from Caesars Sportsbook uh, at 3:30. I want you here as we visit with Max Meyer of Caesars, who is the guy when it comes to telling us, you know, where's the action? And why is the action suddenly, last weekend it was Oregon State USC, this weekend it's tonight's game, Washington and UCLA. Uh, Betters are gravitating towards the Pac-12 games. Why? I'll ask Max Meyer that at 3.30. Back to the bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Disturbing scene last night. Miami Dolphins game. As uh, Tuo... Uh, Tuo... Tua... Boa. Am I saying that Okay. I, I got it good when he was playing at Alabama. I had it down. And then all of a sudden now he's in the NFL. He's gone off of my radar a little bit. Now he's back. And all of a sudden now I, I can't pronounce his damn name anymore. Sean, Sean's got it. He, he... Tua Tagovailoa. Tagovailoa. Yeah, that sounds good. First one was bad. I know it was. <laughs> I know. I, I had it, but I couldn't even get the Tua right. I was so focused on the second part of his name. But anyway, let's, I digress. Let's talk about Tua. Um, last night, Sean, I'm presuming you were watching the game. Steven, you were watching the game. What was your reaction when you see him go down with a head injury? It was pretty disturbing, and it was a pretty agonizing 10 or 12 minutes, I think, for people who were in the stadium. I, of course, was watching, but at first I was listening because I was commuting home. And so I'm listening on the radio uh, to right here on 750 The Game and the color commentator on the radio, I think it was Kurt Warner. He thought to, uh, when he got sacked, had a dislocated finger. And so Kurt Warner's like, you know, he's got a dislocated finger. His finger's bent. And in my mind, I'm like, ah, we're going to lose him for, for a couple weeks. And then I start getting all these texts like, Tua's not okay. You know, Tua, what, what's going on with Tua? And I was like, wow, this must be a really bad finger injury. And then I walk into the apartment, and I see Tua on a stretcher, and I see what, what truly happened. So uh, really disturbing. And, you know, I want to learn more. And, you know, I think there's a lot of speculation going on, and I think there's accusations at the Dolphins right now that I'm not sure are necessarily fair, I, especially when it comes to Mike McDaniel, the head coach. I have no doubt in my mind that he did not put his players, he would not put Tua out there. Uh, if Tua had a concussion, I, there's I, no doubt in my mind. Do that you know that, that though? Do you, can you know that without knowing it? I like, you know, I, I really like Coach McDaniel, and from his press conferences, just the gauge that I'm getting, um, just as someone that follows him very closely, I I, I like to believe him, um, and yeah, I just can't see him doing that over a football game. 
Here's what Mike McDaniel said today as he was asked about the injury to Tua Tungo-Vailoa. Yeah, otherwise we would have reported him having a head injury. I mean, that's that's why the NFL has these protocols, um, and there's not, like every single NFL game that is played, um, there's an independent specialist that specializes in the specialty of brain matter. So, um, yeah, the, um, for me, as long as I'm coaching here, um, if there's in, uh, you know, I'm not going to fudge that whole that whole situation if there's um, any any sort of inclination that someone has a concussion they go into the concussion protocol and it's very strict without without um, yeah if people don't vary or stray we, I, we don't mess with that never have and I as long as I'm the head coach that will never be um, an issue that you guys have to worry about there's Mike McDaniel talking about uh, his players and player safety. Uh, I want to go to the phone lines. I want your phone calls on this. What do you make of it? I don't blame the Players Association for wanting an investigation. Uh, 503-417-7575. Steven, uh, what was your reaction to it? Yeah, I mean, it's a scary thing, right? And it's coming off of the, you know, he says that he passed all those tests, but if you watch the game before last week on Sunday, he didn't look all right in the Bills game. Now, he said it wasn't a head injury and he got cleared, so we have to take him at his word on that. But, you know, there's been a lot of shady things in football, so it was just more of a scary situation because we know we know so much more about head injuries and CTE and concussions and all these type of things that anytime someone is knocked out unconscious and the cold, not going to cold like that, like, we know it's not good for your brain. So I think immediately it was just, you know, hope he's okay and at some point, you know, hopefully he comes back. But, I mean... Man, that's, if it's two concussions within the last week, that's not going to be good. I also think, look, you can never leave it to the player. And I know the NFL has a protocol. And I know that the NFL Players Association, they're going to investigate this. But, you know, to Sean's point, Sean, you, you love the Dolphins. You're a fan of the Dolphins. I don't blame you for thinking the way that you think. Like, I would, I would hope every NFL team would take this seriously, say the right thing, do the right thing. Don't just say the right thing, but do it. But in the end, I want to know what was going on a week ago because that was alarming. And given what we know, League of Denial, all that, I think people want the reassurance that the NFL and the players are following the protocol. One thing I'd add is that after Sunday's game when he got up, and that was a tough hit. That that one was really bad against the Bills. He gets up and he's wobbling around, and the NFL immediately after he played, he finished that game, won the game. They launched an investigation against the Dolphins, and then they cleared that before Thursday. So they basically confirmed the NFL saying, yeah, he uh, he did have a back injury. It wasn't a head injury. So that was quickly cleared. So, uh, you know, I think I think we need to pump the brakes on saying he suffered no, concussion. No, 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 no. We don't need to pump the brakes. We don't need to pump the brakes. Well, I think what, he, wait, people wait, wait, are wait, 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 wait. You're a fan of the Miami Dolphins. See, I let you go, but you can't you can't tell other people to pump the brakes who are who are exhibiting concern. The NFL Players Association's in on this, Sean. Yes. Like I get, like re- let's remove that it's the Dolphins. Step out of your Tua jersey for a mm-hmm. second and remove that it's the Dolphins. Would you not want answers? Don't you think fans deserve answers? Don't you think stakeholders and other players deserve answers? Like he looked bad last night. This is not football. This isn't about your Dolphins going to the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Right. This is about people dying in an era, a couple of decade era, maybe probably longer, where the NFL stood and said, 
There's nothing to see here. There's no evidence of brain injuries. Oh, now we're coming in with all this protocol stuff. We had a guy who was like laying on the field in a way that he was incapacitated yeah, last night. Totally we, we true. Pump the brakes on that. Well, here, here's what I meant. Here's what I meant. I, I'm just saying he's been he he was cleared by the NFL. Like the NFL's cleared the Dolphins of the investigation for the mishandling of the concussion last Sunday, and then you know people are saying he shouldn't have flied home with the team. That was the the you know the hospital that allowed him to fly home with the team. The hospital's and- not in charge of the Miami Dolphins. Stop. You're being an apologist. This is your team. If this were not your team, how would you feel about it? Step out of the Dolphins jersey for a second. Yeah, the, you the know, hospital doesn't have control over who gets on the plane. The mm-hmm. Miami Dolphins and Mike McDaniel let Tua get on the plane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a fair point. It's a fair point. I think you know there's certainly there's their Dolphins need to answer some questions. That's for sure. All right, I don't blame you for being a fan. I don't I don't blame that at all. I'm a Niner fan. I would want to believe my team's doing the right thing, but I 100% things this thinks that this needs to be investigated. Dave's in Vancouver. Dave, go ahead. Oh, thanks for having me on, John. I'm, I'm glad to see you. Yeah, you're making me like you even more. <laughs> but, uh... All right. So you like me so much, you were unable to speak. Mark's in Portland. Mark, welcome to the show. How you doing? I'm well. Hey, uh, I, hate, I kind of agree with what Sean's saying because th- there'd be a lot of people that would be in the corrupt side of the aisle right now if – if Tua, in fact, had a concussion last Sunday because they did launch an investigation. The team doctor is going to be involved. The, you know, the, all the, the coaches are involved. I mean, so a lot of people would have had to lie in order for him to suit up on Thursday. Um, so the, going with the innocent until you're proven guilty thing, I, I just think both sides should put on the brakes. Yeah, but, but I, when, when I hear put on the brakes, when I hear put on the brakes, I hear – we, there's nothing to see here. But I, I don't think when it comes to somebody's brain and health in the NFL, we should pump the brakes. I think we should be going, hey, we need all the information I'll, here. I'll we need everything. It. I'll simplify it, John. I'll bet you 50 bucks that he didn't have a concussion last Sunday. Well, I don't, I, no, I don't want to bet. I just want to know. And I also want to know, look, this was a Sunday to Thursday turnaround. So yes, maybe, like, is that the problem? Is there an issue there? Is, you know, like, um, should should we not be playing Thursday games? Um, I think with the with the brain injuries now, and we didn't think this way when you and I were playing, and yeah. um, I think we should err on the side of precaution. So if there was a concussion on Sunday and we find that out, which anything's possible, there's a lot of people that should uh, be, you know, uh, fined or whatever. They how, A lot of people should be suspended and punished, not just the head coach, but doctors and a lot of people because he has to go through – you know, a, a protocol and all kinds of things. Everybody saw what happened if you're an NFL yeah. follower. He got yeah. destroyed on a play by Buffalo, and, and he kind of snapped back. It looked like he could have either hurt his back or his head, but it, it's possible they're covering it up. And I'm just saying a, there'd be numerous people involved Yes. Um, if, he, if he did. And it's possible because you know how bad these guys want to win. Yeah, and look, and I always feel like you can't leave it to the player. Uh, you know, we'll talk more about it later in the show, I'm sure, but you can't leave it to the player. And, Sean, I'm not mad at you here. It's a good discussion, and I don't blame you for defending the Dolphins. That's your team. But I also feel like I really want to know. Like, I want the NFL. I don't need to see the medical reports because I wouldn't know what to do with them. But I want the NFL to look at it, and I want to see 
what happened, and I want to know, and I want to hear from somebody who's independent who goes, hey, the Dolphins handled this right. It's just unfortunate that he, you know, he got sacked and he, his head hit the ground, and this is what happens sometimes in the NFL. It's it's the problem is is we've been you know our, we've the rug has been pulled out on us by the NFL and all these sports leagues so it's for me it's hard to just trust at their word like yeah this has happened you know I don't know exactly I don't know the medical reports like you said but it's hard for me to trust what the NFL is doing because they have you know told us to just don't look this way and it's not they'll be fine just enjoy the sport so like it's just it's it's bad that it happened and. Like you said, it's got to be taken out of the players' hands because the players are always going to want to play. So you've got to find somewhere in in the middle where it's truly an independent person saying, no, you cannot go back in the game, and they have to abide by it. I, I, I just want to focus real quick on Mike McDaniel, especially the head coach. First-year head coach, uh, former assistant with the Niners. I just He's been getting a lot of culpability in this. And for me, Mike McDaniel, he – like. His job is to coach the team, and so he he doesn't control who's available, who's not available. He's not a medical expert. He is told two is available, and then he says, "Oh, two is available. Let's throw him in." Like that's that's all that Mike McDaniel's job is. He's not saying like, "No, we need two in." You know what I mean? So like, yeah, yeah I don't say, but you don't know that last part. Like, I agree with the like in theory. Here's the protocol, but you don't know. You're not there in the Miami mm-hmm. Dolphins offices. We don't. None of us knows if Mike McDaniel went to the trainer and to the doctors and said, hey, we need him on Thursday night. Nobody knows that. I, I would hope he didn't, but I think they need to look into it and, and, and figure out what happened last Sunday, what were the medical findings. They have a whole protocol. I like what McDaniel said today, but given like 20 years, 30 years, we heard the NFL deny there was an issue. Like I, I don't trust the league, and so I want – I want someone to look into this because I don't want this to happen to anybody else if, in fact, this is something that could have been prevented. Is, yeah. that, is that fair? Yeah, and let me be the first to say, like, two of the person comes first. As a, like a Dolphins fan, I'm not not worrying. Like, I don't care about seeing him on the field the rest of the season. Like when I was watching that last night, I was praying for the two of the person, and you know, the football part of this was on the back of my mind because he, you know, by all accounts, is a great guy. He's you know, he's great for the NFL, and he's dealt with so many injuries. You think of Tua back at Alabama; he broke his hip back in college. So, uh, you know, that's that's something. Thing I want to I want to say as well. Just hope I I don't care about seeing him on the field again this season. I hope he gets right. Yeah, this wouldn't be the first time that an NFL player goes back in with a concussion. If he did, you know, just recent history, Julian Edelman in that Super Bowl against the Seahawks admitted, like, yeah, I had a concussion, but I just got myself back in the game. So like, this does happen. Um, yeah, it's, you know, again, like Sean said, it's all about I, Tua. Hopefully, he's okay. I just I'm allergic when when he said pump the brakes. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We no, it needs to, we need to full force go into this and go. Hey, what happened? What was said? What are the medical reports? Uh, could it have been prevented? And if the answer to that is no, hey, he had a back issue, this was a concussion, uh, you know, that's fine. But maybe somebody also needs to look into the idea that maybe the NFL players shouldn't be playing a game on Sunday and then turning around uh, on three days rest and going out on Thursday and playing a Thursday night game. I don't know. Does it make but, it any better that now they get 10 days off, or do you still feel like it's just it's just not good? Yeah, uh, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's true. I I don't like the Thursday game for a variety of reasons, and the players don't like it either. I don't think. But you know, now that they do have that extra time, yeah, I was thinking about Sunday to Thursday. It's it was previous Sunday to Thursday. So, you know, I want to know. I just want to know that he was okay, and I want to know that this wasn't 
some case of either Tua demanding that he get back in the game or, uh, you know, at a doctor or a coach, you know, you know, fudging or cutting a corner. Like, that shouldn't happen in today's world. All right, leave it here. We're going to Vegas next. We're going to talk to the guy at Caesars Sportsbook. Max Meyer is joining us to tell us what the heck's going on with the Pac-12 and wagering. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Well, the last couple weeks, I've been uh, following Max Meyer of Caesars because he does a great job in putting out like the latest trends on the spreads on the top 25 and in particular the Pac-12 uh, and I finally just decided hell we got to get him on the show we've been talking about him we've been regurgitating his data on this program and he's joining us now where are you right now where's home Oh, I'm in New York City, so I am I am a rare East Coast uh, Pac-12 guy, but I, I'm a USC alum, and and that's what really started my love for the conference. I love it. Uh, give us an idea. So, what do you do for Caesars? What's your technical role? Because you're our go-to betting guy on Twitter, but you know what do, what do they call you? So, I'm the uh, editorial content writer at Caesars, but my role is is kind of twofold. So. I have access to the back end of Caesars, meaning I can see every single bet that comes in. And basically, I, I turn all the data into editorial content and national storylines, just, you know, picking which uh, sides and, and bets are, are most interesting to me and sharing them with, uh, you know, the public. We're talking to Max Meyer with Caesars. Uh, let's talk about tonight's game. It caught my eye. Washington visiting UCLA, 4-0 against 4-0. Huskies, uh, a three-point favorite in this game, but you're seeing a whole bunch of money on, on Washington in this game. So, yes and no. Um, this game has actually been the most popularly bet spread uh, among the entire uh, Week 5 slate, and it, a lot of it is due just to the fact that this is a Friday night game, this is the one Power 5 game on the slate, and there's a ranked team, and typically – um, if, if there is a good matchup like this, like the, the Friday night, it's going to get a lot, a, a lot of money early in the week. But I'm really looking forward to this game. Uh, this line's actually dropped to Washington two and a half. Uh, we have been seeing more UCLA money today, so Washington's only getting about 61 uh, percent of the handles, still about 78 percent of tickets. But we've definitely been seeing some respected money on UCLA. That's interesting. So give us an idea because last week it was USC Oregon State that that was the the big game as far as handle is concerned. Is it because of the geography of Caesars being on the western part of the United States and the Pac-12, or is there something else going on that the Pac-12 games are attracting that kind of attention? Uh, so, I, I mean, where Caesars is all over. It, it's just, you know, like obviously we're, we're, you know, we go in New York and New Jersey, so we have the East Coast mm. presence. I mean, Michigan and Iowa. So we're, we're pretty much all over. Um, last week, I, I think, was also a unique circumstance. So we opened USC Oregon State, USC 13 and a half, and, and the rest of the market was around seven. And so the fact that there was that discrepancy between our sports book and, and, the, and other shops, mm. um, I think that, that that's what really drew a lot of the action. And, and then there was another day when we, were, when we had USC minus seven and other books had it at, at uh, USC minus six or six and a half. And just even that point or, or half a point, that just drew a lot of big money uh, coming in on, on Oregon State. And so I think for the Pac-12, 
you know, like I'm really interested to see how the handle compares in a couple weeks uh, for USC Utah when yeah. Alabama, Tennessee, and, and Penn State, Michigan are, are also that same Saturday. I think that that's going to be really telling to see, you know, just how the Pac-12 stacks up with its marquee games against some of the other bigger conferences. We're talking to Max Meyer, who's with Caesars, and he's talking about the betting lines and the action, and he's got access to the back end of the system here. Uh, Oregon State, Utah, what are you seeing on that game? Yeah, so we opened this Utah 11. Uh, it got uh, to as high as 12 at first and then as low uh, as 9.5. Now it's it's kind of in the middle at 10.5. Uh, Utah, majority of the action, they've gotten about 57% of the tickets, 70% of the handle, though. Uh, this game is fascinating. Just Oregon State, they, they should have beaten USC last week, and now – you know, there, the, I like you can't call Utah exactly a letdown spot, but right. it's just really interesting. Like I'm interested to see how you know all all these kids respond. Uh, but Utah, you know, after losing to Florida, uh, they've looked great, except the competition hasn't exactly been that great, and they're without Brant Keithy, who is definitely one of the most important offensive weapons in the conference. Um, yeah, and so I, I think that this is going to be pretty good two way action. Uh, some respected money on Utah. And you know, like I, if like if, if I had to pick, I'd I'd probably go, I'd probably lean Utah in, in this one too. I, it's interesting, you know, as USC now turns and plays an Arizona State team that lost its head coach. Uh, I saw the spread on this game early in the week. It was at like twenty five and a half in some places. Uh, I don't know where it is now, but it. What happens with a game like this? Because a lot of national brand with USC, you know USC well. You know that I, I think you got to put a big number up there to get people to bet on Arizona State in, in this in this uh, matchup. But where do you see this line? Where are the trends right now? Yeah, so I mean, with the USC, and, and I mean the first three weeks, like they covered, and, and so and and people have been riding USC against the spread all season, and so you're right, and especially against an Arizona State team. Obviously, Herm Edwards is gone. Uh, they lost Eastern Michigan as a big favorite. They get blown out by Utah. It's like, who wants to really bet on Arizona State? So that, that's why the line is as high as it is. And we took a, a crazy uh, money line bet. Um, so USC is, is minus 4,500, and we took a 575,000 bet on USC just to win the game. And the payout is, is just a little under 13,000. So I thought that that was, that was pretty wild. Uh, in terms of spread, USC about 72% of the tickets, 78% of the handle. I mean, this is still uh, obviously one of the best offenses in the country, even though they were sluggish against Oregon State. It's just hard for me to lay all of these points with a defense that, you know, that has as many questions as USC does. But I don't necessarily know if, if I could, you know, put any or recommend anyone's hard-earned money on Arizona State given – you know, you, we just don't know how they're going to respond. It just feels like a lost season for Arizona State. But with Emory Jones, their quarterback, dual-threat quarterbacks have given uh, USC issues in the past. Um, I, I think it's it's a little too high, but I, you know, I wouldn't blame you if you just stay away from this game completely. All right, so back up to that $575,000 bet. Give me the deets on that. Yeah, so th this was uh, a Nevada better who uh, put this uh, down at Caesars Palace. And... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting just to see, you know, such a huge bet come in uh, to win that little money. And one that we had earlier in the season, we took uh, a very bit, we took a six-figure bet on Alabama money line against Texas. 
And that better was definitely sweating it out just because Alabama eked out that win over yeah. Texas. And, and they very and they very well could have lost. So, you know, it, it's that, like I wouldn't recommend these types of bets right? Uh, just because you really you, you never know. But, you know, different betters see di- different opportunities. What, what's the payout on that 575 again? 13. What was it? Uh, a little under 13,000. It's like uh, 12,800. Oh, my gosh. That's a lot of. Five seventy-five. I would no way. That it, I mean, that's insane to do something like that. We're talking to Max Meyer with Caesars, uh, who is the guy who is behind the scenes and uh, revealing to us what is going on behind the scenes. Um, it, you know, as you move around college football, the big brands in college football, I'm assuming, attract more wagering. Are there some market opportunities in your mind when you see that kind of? That kind of stuff going on when USC is making its way around the conference, you know, uh, you know, are there going to be some opportunities with the lines maybe being skewed a little bit to the brand? Yeah, I would typically say any marquee top ten, you can even say top twenty-five team. Uh, you know, people will just see the, the the number next to the team and and they'll typically bet them. And so, um, for a lot of these, you know, it. it, it the value play is going against uh, the ranked team and, and backing the unranked team. And, you know, uh, and, you know, there's Oregon state obviously, which is unranked, but that's a little different situation. USC, Arizona state. Like I, I, I don't think that the line should be as high as it is personally. It's just really tough to lay money on Arizona state. And then Oregon, Oregon's interesting though, just because they're, for me, they're a very Jekyll and Hyde team. Like I think at home, uh, they've always, uh, you know, played well at Austin and Bo Nix, even going back uh, to his days at Auburn, he's definitely had much stronger splits at home versus on the road. And so, you know, like that when you last week with Oregon, Washington State, I personally was on Washington State because I, I just really don't trust road Oregon. And now they're back at home uh, against Stanford. And again, this is another line that I think is a little too high. But Stanford, I mean, their offensive line was just such a disaster against Washington. And Oregon at home is just is, is such a beast. But Stanford with Tanner McKee against an Oregon defense that's really disappointing. That's that's also a lot of points. So I, I would typically say that if you are um, looking at ranked games uh, when you're betting it, typically the value lies with, with the unranked team. Stephen uh, has a question for you, Max. Stephen, go ahead. Yeah. So you talked about uh, Arizona State and Herm Edwards being fired as a coach. Like, what do you? What is the like the market reaction to fired coaches? Because we're looking at Colorado now. Uh, they're seventeen and a half point dogs to Arizona. Carl Drell could be on the hot seat. You talked about Arizona State twenty six, I believe, to USC. Like, how big of a factor is that in the market? Uh, well, the first coach that was fired this season was Scott Frost at Nebraska, and we were actually seeing a, a good amount of Nebraska money against Oklahoma. And of course, Nebraska gets blown out. But um, first game after a coach gets fired is, is a popular angle, um, especially in the pros, just because you think that the team's going to rally around. You know, it, it's new era, especially if it's a coach that they dislike. But I think a, a key difference for college is that. These recruits are are choosing the coach that they want to play for a lot of the time versus pros. You know, you're, you're kind of stuck with where you're drafted for at, at least early on in your career. And so, I think with some uh, college and and we're and we're going to see it. You know, with what happens Georgia Tech uh, this week uh, against Pitt after Jeff Collins. 
uh, got let go. But with Arizona State, first game without Herm Edwards, they get blown out against Utah, and Nebraska gets blown out against Oklahoma. It could be the reverse effect that, you know, that these kids uh, feel bad that, that, you know, that they got their coach fired. And, and so it might not be the same effort um, that you would think uh, for, for maybe an NFL team uh, a, a, the, the first game after their coach gets fired. Yeah, and I also want to know about uh, just the futures of the Pac-12 market. You know, looking at it, Utah, Utah, UC are the top two teams, kind of whatever you think there. Then Oregon sitting there, four and a half, five to one. Washington lit right after them. Uh, do you think there's any value on any teams outside of Utah and USC right now in the Pac-12? Uh, I, I I don't think any value on Oregon. Um, Washington, I, I think right now is, is at its peak as well. Um, UCLA is, is interesting to me. I just don't think that they have the horses to compete with uh, Utah or USC. Um, I, I fully expect USC and Utah to meet in the conference uh, title game in Vegas. But I, I think Washington – I would say Washington is, is the best team in the north for, for my money's worth. But I, I just – at 7-1, to one, when, I mean, they, they were, I think, 15 or 16-1 to one at Caesars uh, to win the Pac-12 before the season. And I actually – I think UCLA up, uh, upsets Washington outright tonight. So I, I wouldn't be taking Washington now. Uh, maybe if, if, you know, if that price climbs a bit uh, after they lose, just because Washington doesn't have to face USC, they don't have to face Utah, so there's a schedule advantage there. But I wouldn't take Oregon or Washington right now. Uh, Sean's got a question as well. Sean, you got a question for Max Meyer of Caesars. Yeah, I've got a question for Max. Um, I'm just curious, you know, like there was so much action last week on Oregon State USC, and it sounds like there's a ton of action this week on Washington UCLA. Why do you think people are placing all of this money on these Pac-12 games that maybe aren't marketed as much as the marquee SEC game or the big ESPN game? Uh, why, are, why are people keep kind of moving towards these these Pac-12 games, especially last week that was on the Pac-12 network? Yeah, so um, like I said before, a lot of it for last week was the line discrepancy, but I, I also think the fact that these games are later in the night and, you know, if, you know, maybe, you know, you don't have any plans on a Friday night, and you just want to watch the game and just have, like, something fun to do. Uh, same with, you know, last night or last week, the, the USC-Oregon State game, you know, kicked off really late. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a fun way to end your night. And, real, and, and sometimes also, especially Saturday nights, you know, like maybe there are people that have a little extra money after having a nice college football betting day who, I guess, you know, want to – I, I try and double their profits even more and just, you know, basically a bet on the game or reverse or conversely, you know, you're having a bad day and, and I guess you want to go uh, back to even and you kind of chase a little bit, which never recommend, but there are definitely betters that do. And so you place the biggest bet of the day on, on the last big game of the day. So I think timing definitely plays a part. Uh, definitely the fact that it was on, that USC Oregon State was on Pac-12 Network versus ESPN, I don't think that that really helped handle, especially you know with live betting being as prominent as it is and a lot of people not being able to watch the game. But I, I think that timing definitely plays a part. And, and the fact that USC and UCLA, uh, and especially USC, I mean, they're such brand names. And, you know, and, and these are interesting games just because USC, Oregon State, these were battle of undefeated teams being pitted against each other last week. UCLA, Washington is undefeated teams, and, and people, you know, are, are interested in these types of games. Max Meyer, Caesars, on Twitter, at the Max Meyer. Hey, thanks for coming on. We'd love to get you back on and talk more about this down the road. Absolutely, and uh, best of luck if, uh, to anyone listening who's placing bets this weekend. There you go. I love that. Max Meyer from Caesars. Leave it here. Our big splash coming up. 
back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Hour number one's been lively. Hour number two, I think, will be just the same. Bill Riley, ESPN 700 in Salt Lake City will be along. Anna will be along as well. You'll also hear some of the most god-awful laughs that you've ever heard in the history of mankind. Somebody had a great idea. Some European show had a great idea or a terrible idea, depending on what you think it is. They got people who had obnoxious laughs together, put them on the same talk show, and then rolled a camera on it. You sent this to me, John. I had no idea what this was, and I had no idea what I just watched when you sent it to me. It was <laughs> like it, I was I, I I was out of words. I had nothing to say. I had no idea what was happening. I had a friend who said they should use it for interrogation. It would work. <laughs> I, I would spill the beans. <laughs> I had to listen to that all day. He said uh, they could use the auto in prisoner interrogation. He said 10 minutes of that, and I'm giving up the nuclear codes. Definitely. I mean, it was it's it's funny. So uh, we'll play it. We'll see what your reaction is uh, in the 4 o'clock hour. Also, um, the Cubs did a really cool drone shot of Wrigley Stadium or drone tour of Wrigley Stadium. I think it's fantastic. I uh, tweeted it, if you're interested, at John Canzano BFT. And Stephen Vaughn made, uh, made the newsletter today. Uh, I'm starting something fun on Fridays where I give the tweet of the week. Um, you got the tweet of the week, man. You... Speed stripping is the tweet of the week. I, you know what? I accept it, and I am grateful for the honor. I appreciate it. Uh, you know, it's been the talk in my house. It's been the talk of the town. I've had a couple <laughs> people talk to me that like listen to the show that know me, and they're like, "Yeah, heard heard you take your shirt off fast." And like, yeah, and so they want to see it right then. But I, you know, I don't want to yeah. do it in front of everybody. You're gonna be in Costco, and people are gonna be like, "Do it, man. Do Just it. All right. Want to see it right now? Um, all right. Big splash today. Uh, do you want to do the benchmark or not? I don't. I don't need to do it. No, no, no. We'll go. Okay. The big splash is coming out of the WNBA. Uh, I told you last week that uh, Oregon Senator Ron Wyden had written a letter to Adam Silver and to Kathy Engelbert, the commissioner of the WNBA. They wrote back. They're now pen pals. Uh, Engelbert and Silver have responded, and they say that the WNBA is, quote-unquote, actively considering Portland as an expansion market. That's our big splash. Hour number two is next. Leave it here. <laughs> B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Keep thinking about that $575,000 Moneyline wager. Somebody walked into Caesars Sportsbook and said, I'll take USC over Arizona on the Moneyline. Does it make me a bad person that I kind of want Arizona State to win now? Like, <laughs> I that's had the a, same it's a, thought. It's a bad bet. Like, don't do that. You don't do that because, you know, people on Twitter, I tweeted it out, and some of the some of the mentions or the replies are, hey, it's easy money. It's a free, free $13,000. But I'm also of the mindset that if you have $575,000 in your pocket, I, I would hope you were smarter than that because you can, yeah, you might win this one, but at some point you're going to get caught. And when you get caught, there's no coming back from 575. It'd take you a long time at $13,000 a pop to get there. The upside's just not there. 
Yeah, just it's too little for. I mean, we've seen crazy things happen in sports, right? Stanford on the road to beat USC, Harbaugh. They believe that was a thirty-five point spread in that one. You know, it happens. I know we had a plan in this segment to do some other stuff, punch it audio, but I, I really want to drill down on the Pac-12 games before we get too far along on the show. And we'll get back to all the other stuff. We'll get back to Tua. We'll get back to uh, talking about, you know, Oregon and Oregon State more specifically and other things. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about the game tonight. UCLA will play Washington tonight uh, on ESPN. And it is uh, a big game, as Max Meyer told us, as far as uh, the wagering is concerned. This is 7.30 kickoff tonight. Uh, and I, I, I like the Huskies. And... I, I was doing some research on UCLA today, and I came up with something that makes me even more, um, makes me, you know, I don't want to say fall for the Huskies here, but makes me believe in the Huskies even more. Here's how random UCLA's seven-game win streak is, okay? This is, their, this is who they beat to get to seven. At Colorado last season. South Alabama, Alabama State. Uh, uh, let me go. Let me do it in chronological order. Colorado last season, at USC, Cal, Bowling Green, South Alabama State, South Alabama, and at Colorado. That's who they beat. They beat a they beat a USC team last year that was down. They beat Cal last year that was finishing their season in a rescheduled game. Uh, they beat Colorado twice. Bowling Green, Alabama State, South Alabama. The, I'm not impressed. I'm just, it, and, I, and is it wrong to not be impressed? Like, is it possible these guys are good? I guess. But if we really do believe in, you know, you build metal and you become better because, you know, it's iron on iron and you test yourself. Like, if we believe that Oregon was better for playing Georgia in the opening week, and we believe that Utah was better for going to Florida and playing that game. They came out a bit better. And if we believe that Oregon State was better for playing USC a week ago, I don't know what to make of UCLA, guys. No, I don't think you're wrong, right? Like, they haven't beaten anybody good in this winning streak. But what I'm going to say is Dorian Thompson-Robinson has been there for so many years under this Chip Kelly offense. So he knows the offense in and out, and he's been awesome this year. I know it's getting lesser op- lesser competition, but almost 75% completions, eight touchdowns, one pick. Uh, you know, Obviously, he could run the football as well. Washington, on the other hand, I they've proven it at home. They haven't proven it on the road. And so that's the one thing I am you know worried about. I know that it's not a huge home field advantage at UCLA, but still, it's a Friday night. All eyes are going to be on that because it's going to be the big-time game on ESPN. No other games are on. Everyone's watching it. I think it's a weird spot for both teams. I was, you know, I I said I picked UCLA before uh, we picked that yesterday. I was glad Max Meyer said he likes UCLA in the game. I still do. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a spot where I need to see it out of Washington first. They've been kind of down the last few years, so to not have any road games, no road experience under this new staff, I need to see that first before I'm going to pick against them. I think there's a chance that UCLA is is good. I think there's a chance that they're they're not that good. I, I just don't think we can take much from these these games that have been pretty much bye weeks for them besides, I guess, that South Alabama game. But I think there's a lot of times in college football where we see teams sleepwalk through easy opponents. Like, for example, we know how good Georgia is. They beat Oregon 49-3, to but last week they beat Kent State by, like, 
a dozen points. So th- there's a lot of cases of teams kind of sleepwalking through, not taking opponents seriously, and that doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad or that they're a good team. So I, we're going to learn a ton about UCLA tonight. It helps them that they haven't really had a tough game tonight. I like Washington to win, and I'm most skeptical about UCLA's home field advantage or lack thereof, but I, I don't think, I'm not going to sit here and say that UCLA is not very good because I think there's a lot of times in college football that, you know, when you play a bad opponent and you barely win, doesn't really mean much. Yeah, I just don't like, I don't like how they played it in any of these games this year. Like, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it for an extended period of time. I've seen Washington do it. And we may argue that Portland State wasn't very good or maybe even Michigan State wasn't very good, but I watched Washington do it. They they showed me something. And and for that reason, I believe in him. And look, it does concern me. Like, I'm not really, like, people always say there's no home field advantage. Look at UCLA. The fans don't show up. That's only part of it. Yeah, it, it would help if the environment was hostile. But part of it is the UCLA players are going to uh, not have to pack a bag, not going to have to get on a bus and then get on a plane, not going to have to get off a plane and then get on a bus, not going to have to go to a hotel, not going to be out of rhythm, not going to be, you know, I don't know how players sleep in hotels, but when I go and I'm traveling to cover a game, I'm often at a team hotel, and I can tell you they're get, they get them up, they get them moving around, they get them to meetings, they, they're walking around the hotel. They, you know, it's a busy day for them. And, I, and we always have this idea that they're all relaxed. I don't think they are. I think part of it is the travel, and I think that is stacked against Washington in this game. Um, but I really – I just like the Huskies in this game. I think we're going to find out. We're gonna, I think you know, people keep asking me, are we going to learn more about Washington or more about UCLA? And my answer is both. Like, I think we're going to come away from this and go, one of these teams is legit and one is not. And if UCLA beats Washington, I'm going to believe in them. But I just – I haven't seen it to this point. And if they come to this game with a South Alabama, Alabama State, Bowling Green effort, I think Washington could blow them off the off the field. I think you're right. I think if you're if you want UCLA to win, you have to just hope that, you know, they're gonna get up for this game because like you said, they've had some bad opponents so far. They haven't had to get up. You know, they got down against Bowling Green as well in the first game. So this game they know they have to go from the start. They can't start like that. So, you know, maybe they get out, they get going in the first quarter, first half. Maybe they don't. Maybe Washington just throws it all over. But I think you're right. We're going to learn about both of these teams. And I think whoever wins this game has a legitimate chance to get to Vegas. Like, you look at their schedules, they're both pretty favorable. I think they both have a chance. Let's move to other games. Oregon State's at Utah, 11 a.m. Saturday, Pac-12 Networks game. Uh, We'll talk more about this game with Bill Riley later this hour. But big bounce-back game for the Beavers. We we heard from Jonathan Smith this week. I I felt better about the Beavers after that talk. I felt better about the Beavers after Jaden Grant. Uh, I think Oregon State can play Utah close. You guys, you heard the same interviews. What do you think of this game now? I think they have a chance to win. I really do. You know, Utah, we've seen Florida kind of sputter since that game. And, you know, we're not really quite sure how good Utah is. We know they're good, but we're not sure how good they are uh, this season without some of the leaders they lost last year, like Devin Lloyd and Britton Covey. So, uh, you know, I think Utah's got a really tough stretch in front of them. And I think this is an 11 a.m. game. So it's really tough to play in Utah Stadium, but it's probably tougher at night. So I think there's a lot of things going for Oregon State. And Oregon State, I trust them this year. Like, I 
trust them to be a week-in and week-out contender in this conference and to battle with all these teams. So I, I like them to cover the 10.5 points. I'm not going to pick them to win, but I, I do think that this is going to be a really competitive game. I agree with Sean that I I have trust in Oregon State, but what I don't have trust in right now is Chance Nolan. Yep. And and that's the thing that scares me is going on the road. You know, Last year when they beat Utah, he threw the ball 19 times. They ran the ball 46 that's going to have to be the game plan this year, and I think Utah is going to be ready for it. So I do like Utah. I like Utah laying the points. I just don't have that trust yet in Chance Nolan. I trust everything else around it. I trust the coaching staff, but I need to see Chance Nolan in a big spot against a really good team really have a nice game. Yeah, Chance Nolan's the wild card. Does he bounce back this week and have a good performance? Because you know, I left last year, and I remember this. I had coffee with Jaden Grant in, in the offseason, and Jaden said, what do you think of our team? And I said, I think you need a quarterback. And he said, I don't think we do. I think we got a quarterback. And I, I, didn't, I didn't text him after Saturday night's game because I don't want to get punched in the face. But I, I, I left the game going, why didn't they get a guy in the portal? You know, Washington got Michael Penix Jr. USC got Caleb Williams. Why didn't Oregon State get in the portal and get a quarterback? Because with this defense, the way I think it is this season, I think Oregon State, if they had a little better quarterback, they would have beat USC a week ago. But I think Utah wins the game, but I think it's going to be close. I, I, I would not be surprised if Oregon State won the game, but I, I have to pick Utah at home. Cal's at Washington State, 2.30, Saturday, Pac-12 Networks. Uh, I, I don't know what I'm doing with Cal, but I'm picking Washington State to beat Cal 31-28. Uh, I have not been good with Cal this season. Yeah, I, I, you know, the spread is weird, man. It's only four points in Pullman. I thought it would be more. I think Cal gets this done. I think Cal gets the win. And it's one of those games where it's Justin Wilcox just does some things to really confuse Cam Ward. Cam Ward has had a great season uh, led by la- uh, the last game against the Ducks. But before that, he he wasn't great, right? So he had a great game last game. Season has been only okay. I think Wilcox has some things for him. Uh, you know, They could run the ball a little bit. Cal, I think they're going to get enough points. They're going to win the game outright. I think Vegas just underrates Washington State and doesn't know how good they are because last week they were a seven-point underdog to a team in Oregon that they probably should have beaten. They're up 12 points with about five minutes left, and this week only four-point favorites against Cal. Probably a question we should have asked the last guest, but uh, I think that Washington State's going to win this game easily. I just don't think – I like Wilcox, but I don't think they have that great of a roster this year, that great of a team, and I think Washington State is a contender in the North and in this conference, and I expect them to prove it this week on a bounce pack. John, do you think the emotional – loss that Washington State had has any effect on them this week? Like, could the loss last week make them lose two games? That happens all the time, right? And I think that's a big risk. And and I think we have a small sample size with Jake Dickert. We don't have a lot of that to know that he knows what to do, that he knows how to rebound. So there's a question there. And I I love your point about Justin Wilcox. He just – he does little things to take away your strength as a defensive-minded coach. I think Cam Ward – has shown us that you know he'll throw a pick six, he'll make a bad decision, then he'll come back and make a great play. And I think Justin Wilcox could give him a little trouble. And so keep an eye on that in that game. Uh, I don't want to waste too much time with Colorado, Arizona, but guys, do it in one sentence. Colorado at Arizona, here's my sentence. Arizona's better on offense, comma, better on defense, comma, and playing at home. And I'll add fire Carl Durrell after the loss. <laughs> I'll say Arizona's rare chance to pounce. There you go. ASU at USC, 7.30, Saturday night on ESPN. Um, USC, I just think, is too good here, but 25.5 points in this uh, on this spread. Uh, if, if I have to bet this game, I'm taking Arizona State in 25.5.
Yeah, I'm going to hold my nose and hopefully get the get the points of the Arizona State. But, yeah, USC rolls. USC's capable of blowing teams out, and uh, Arizona State's a mess, and I think they're kind of a broken football team. I, I, I kind of like USC 25 and a half, but I'm not going to bet it. Do you guys think Herm Edwards put down that uh... – that big bad at Caesars, five hundred seventy-five thousand. That, that <laughs> yeah, Herm bet. Took the buyout. Took the buyout. Tried to add to it. There you go. Might as well on your way out there. You play to win the game. Um, let's go to Stanford at Oregon, eight o'clock Saturday night on FS1, eight p.m. kickoff. Again, Ducks are seventeen-point favorites. Thereabouts at Onsen Stadium. Very good at home. I think they win the game, but I think Stanford. Stanford always gives them trouble. I think Stanford will hang around a little bit. So I would take Stanford in the seventeen, but Oregon wins. Everything on the field says Oregon should dominate this game, but it's against Stanford, and like you said, Stanford puts up real problems for Oregon for some reason, so I'm with you. I think Stanford stays within the number, but Oregon does get the win. Yeah, we've seen even Stanford's bad teams under David Shaw compete with Oregon well, and it's an 8 o'clock game. There's a lot of just there's a lot of weird juju around this game, so I expect Stanford to keep it close, but I still think Oregon's a far superior team. I think they win by 14. There it is. There's our picks for the week. You can read mine at John Canzano BFT on Twitter or check out johnconzano.com if you want to see the picks, the kickoff times. It's a good uh, tool to bookmark. See how you do against the spread. Uh, I am 30-8 and eight straight up. Am I in jeopardy? Will I get Cal right this week? Who knows? Uh, leave it here. Anna's coming along. Plus, uh, we'll get a visit from Bill Riley in Salt Lake City. I'll ask him that question. Like, what is an 11 a.m. or a noon kickoff local time there? What, how different is that Rice-Eccles crowd? I've seen it at 7.30. I've never seen a noon kickoff in Salt Lake City. Bill Riley will be coming along later this hour. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Anna's popped into the studio. Uh, she, uh, what have you been doing? Running around. What's going on? All over the town. I don't. I don't remember <laughs> my parents doing this. I don't remember my parents like shuttling off to sports events and then coming <laughs> back and going back. I, I, I saw a comedian Sebastian Maniscalco posted on uh, Instagram or whatever the other day, and he was on his way to his daughter's gymnastics. Yeah. And he was essentially like, "This is what I do all day long." I pick up kids, I drop off kids, I take them to gymnastics, and then I sit there and I pretend to be interested, and then I leave and I take the kids <laughs> home. And like, when did that become parent duty 101? <laughs> My mom and dad didn't do that. They took us to the school. They left us at the school. They took you to more things. They picked us up. You played. So, you played like thirteen sports one year in middle school. Yeah, I did. But my, wasn't there some shuttling around no, that was required for that? No, I took the bus to school in the morning. Yeah. And I arrived at the campus. Okay. Then I went to school all day. <laughs> then after school ended, I went to practice. Yeah. And then I practiced in that sport, and then I stood in the dark on the corner by the school. <laughs> Waiting for my mom to pick me up. Yeah, she made one trip. There wasn't none of this back and forth, bringing me a snack. I didn't get a snack after school. My snack was whatever I didn't eat at lunch. 
Actually, that is their snack after school. Um, I don't know. What are you saying? Are we raising soft kids? Is that we need we need them to do less? We're we're no. organizing too much for them. I think we just need to set them loose in the neighborhood and see yeah. what happens. Yeah, I actually do think they need to be set loose a little more. <laughs> I I I think that we are as a culture, we are competitive, and I think there's a little bit of you know rubbernecking going on and. Parents are going, well, what are your kids in? What are your kids in? And so we all sign kids up for a bunch of activities. I actually think the kids need more free time. I think kids in general need shorter sports seasons. They need some time off. They need some. They need the ability to go. Like, There's no time for kids to get on their bikes and go to the park and play games against each other anymore. Mm-hmm. Who has time for that? Mm-hmm. They're on like four teams for seasons that are like way out of season. Like, I don't even know what season it is right now. I know. Are they playing softball right I now? I, I don't didn't know. know. And there was another mom telling me the other day, she's like, oh, yeah, my son's in fall baseball. I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. There's baseball in the fall? I guess there's just year-round sports, right? It didn't used to be that way. We it did not used to be that we way. Played, we played between 12 and 18 Little League games. Maybe there was a summer league that was late in the summer when you were older. And then that was it. Then it was like in high school you had played the regular high school sit, uh, schedule. But yeah. now, now all these people are having Tommy John surgery at age 11. Like, <laughs> it's ridiculous. How many sports are your kids in, Stephen? Um, let's see. So my oldest, he is seven, going to be eight. He is in soccer and basketball. He had a golf camp. And then he will be playing um, baseball in the, <laughs> in the spring. So four. He needs a break. Well, he does. <laughs> Our kid needs a break. Our, you know? Our kid playing some volleyball. She got a break. It was called summer. It's called COVID. That was her time off. Years off. Okay, well, this is what we're gonna do. We're gonna give you a year off. All you have to do is wear a mask everywhere you go. You know what? I actually I do kind of feel like we're all. I'm not just talking about the kids. I do feel like people are really in in lots of ways making up for what didn't happen for a couple of years. Like I just feel people like throwing big birthday parties and celebrating like kind of going a little over the top yeah because where they're like heck man if something else happens you, you know, know it's it's like a total like yolo mentality that people have right now you never know? know where you're gonna go <laughs> we might as well spend it yeah. do it on our way out a uh, friend of mine uh who is an associate producer on the show uh uh drew he sent me uh, a little bit of uh, a little bit of joy today. He sent me a clip. I don't know if it's joyful or not. It's a French TV show. Okay, I've never watched French TV before. I've seen like, you know, like Telemundo, like Super Sabado, like Spanish language TV. They go all out. Okay, uh-huh. and then I've watched game shows that were like from Japan, that are just wild. Yes. Okay. Well, on French TV. French TV show invited people who have very unusual laughs to come to their studios, <laughs> and they sat them together on a stage. There's about 12 of them on the stage together. And, well, they let the cameras roll. So you ever had a friend with a bad laugh? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Anybody come to – who came to mind? Who came to mind? You ever had a friend that's like, <clears throat> you know, somebody sounds like a seal, mm-hmm. anything? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. These are like 12 friends who got individually invited to the show. They didn't even ask him anything. They just let the cameras roll. And then once the laughter started, I think they all realized why they were there. (laughs) 
célibataire, c'est pas à cause de votre rire. J'espère pas. Non. to that go my head is in my hands <laughs> i think i think something's lost in translation not seeing it yeah <laughs> no but you just, can hear it it's just a cacophony of sound so like i was in the atrium at the zoo at the yes. Oregon zoo or something you yes. didn't miss much by seeing it all it was is people <laughs> sitting there laughing that's all it was they're yeah. just sitting there in a circle just laughing is this entertaining or no <sighs> i think it's highly entertaining for about yeah. Ten seconds. Ten seconds. After that, mm -hmm. uh, you, do you think we could get, like, we could use this at Guant Guantanamo to get answers out of people? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Just let that play? I found my Guinness World Record. Who can sit there listening to this the longest? <laughs> there you go. That's the one. I love it. What's your favorite game show, if that's not your favorite game show? Oh, man. I like, uh, what's the one where they have to go through the obstacle course? Oh, Wipeout? Wipeout. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Not American Ninja Warrior. No. But American Ninja Warrior's cool, <laughs> but I find I I would like American Ninja Warrior better if they just picked people out of the crowd for it. <laughs> yeah. The, these people they've trained for it. Yeah. They're good at it. I understand who they are. They're you know they're they're kind of like on the fringe as athletes and maybe they're real wiry or pound for pound. They're really strong or flexible and they get on the show and they do really well and I get it and it's cool. But I, I need, I, I find myself rooting for them to fall. <laughs> I need the. That's uh, a little dark. It is dark, but I, you know, I don't want them to just get like three quarters of the way through and then they they get tired and they let go. Mm -hmm. That's not entertaining to me. Yeah. I need spectacular falls. But that's what makes Wipeout great yes. because you have your average person. Or below average. Or below average. Yeah. You, <laughs> you know, need to apply for Wipeout, John. Yeah. <laughs> I could do Wipeout. I'd be happy to do it. I would wipe out on those three rubber balls right at the beginning. And they'd jump out and they run across them. It would be spectacular head over heels. You wouldn't have to. I wouldn't have to wait very long. The slow-mo, uh, like the, the instant replay slow-mos on Wipeout, they're the best. They're absolutely the best. What's your game show? Uh, I've always been a fan of Wheel of Fortune. I've just, I'm simple. Wheel of Fortune. Watched it since I was a kid. Love it. Do you like Vanna on the wheel, or do you like Vanna on the board flipping the numbers around, Pat Sajak, like old school? I like everyone in the roles that they were in when I began watching in fourth grade. I'm a traditionalist that way, so yeah. yes. My, my grandmother, my Italian grandmother, was just a huge fan of that show. Yeah. Like, she probably had never seen anything like it in her life, in her upbringing. And she loved the elegance of Vanna White. <laughs> Vanna was so elegant. I don't think Vanna talked right. ever in that era. Yes. Like, they let her talk now. Uh -huh. You know, it's modern show uh -huh. now. You know, it took them a while to get there. But what about you guys? What's your game show? Uh, you know, always been a sucker for Price is Right. Went to a Price is Right show in Vegas. And it was the guy that hosted Supermarket Sweep, which was my other show. I love Supermarket Sweep. I feel like I would have dominated <laughs> that show. Jeopardy you could have done my... that shirtless. I, that would have been my thing. <laughs> Jeopardy is my game show um, mm. for so many reasons. It's just, it's just 
the best one. It's just so simple, and you can play at home. Like during COVID, my uh, my family and I we used to turn on Jeopardy, and we used to play like the participants. And I feel like that's the best part of it. Um, and it was always fun to kind of track who the, the host was and kind of pick our favorite host while they were doing all the guest hosts. And yeah. uh, so Jeopardy is my favorite. I'm gonna fight back. Jeopardy is not easy, uh, and I feel like it anyway. It's hard. I'm bad at yeah, it. Yeah, I'm really bad. That's why I don't like it because I feel really dumb. I also think it's a different show without Alex Trebek on it. It, I, it was so good when like he would interview the people who were the contestants and we all knew they had no lives they were all nerds and geeks and and they would say something and he would just look at the camera and i knew what he was thinking like now that's kind of lost now the mm-hmm. inside joke with inside the joke like did you hear did you just hear what he said like that he would give that look to the camera mm-hmm. sean are you a fan of blossom is she is she now officially the host blossom uh... you know like ma'am it's before his time, Anna. No, the the the, the, the woman who, that's hosting it now. I can't. Yeah. I you know. You know, I haven't I haven't been keeping tabs as much. I think Mayhem, I know. Who uh, yeah. Bialik. Yeah. Bialik. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like I know that. who you're talking about. She's she's fine. You know, I I felt like once Alex Trebek passed, the the easy choice was Ken Jennings because he mm. was Anna like. Knows Ken. He, wait, wait. He's you the know. greatest of all time. Okay. No, you know the other guy that filled in and got booted. Oh, well, there yeah. was the producer hired himself, yeah. like, yeah, at one yeah, point. Yeah. Anna knew be- him. She went to college with that guy. Oh, really? All right, yeah. We got to go to break. We'll talk more about it after this. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Bill Riley, ESPN 700 is coming up. I'm making an inventory currently of uh, all the things that I need to pack as I uh, head off to uh, Salt Lake City uh, to cover Oregon State and Utah. Uh, Steven, that must have been riveting during the commercial break, as you heard me talk about, I, I need to remember my clothes. Yeah, I heard you stuff say, like that. I heard you say, got that, put that in a pile, put that there. Can you get that? <laughs> That's my life right now. That's my life during college football season. Anna's I'm running around, around giving snacks to the kids. You're, hey, put this here, I yep. need this here, I need this here. Uh, here's the other thing. I got, I got, a, I got an issue, Okay. It's a first world problem, but it's a problem. I put four socks in the washing machine. Uh huh. You moved it from the washing machine to the dryer. I did. I looked. I took it out of the dryer. <laughs> I have I, one it, sock. No. Three socks missing. No, you're just missing them. No, three socks missing. <laughs> I don't know where they went. I looked in the washing machine, not there. I looked in the dryer, not there. No one else touched this. The chain of command here was airtight, and yet down to one sock. Just saying, there's something going on in this household. Uh-huh. I, I think it's a common problem. I think it is. I don't know why that happens, though. It feels like society should have found a better way. Yeah, I mean, we can, like, send spaceships. We can send, like, anti-comet devices and try to blow up comets and have them land on comets, yeah. but we can't design a dryer that doesn't make socks disappear. I thought it was pretty cool that, that speaking of that, uh, is it a comet or an asteroid? It's an asteroid. It's not a comet. I'm not a, I'm not. But, na- but NASA expert. was sending up a vending machine sized aircraft to hit an asteroid. Yeah. That is out there in outer space. Uh-huh. And the idea being that, like, it's like a movie, like one day we may have to redirect an asteroid that is heading for planet Earth. So they're practicing. Yeah. They're doing like the pew, 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 yeah. like, you know, the video I'm game. I'm glad they're practicing. Yeah. It gave me a little bit of relief. I scared, It kind of scared me, though. Yeah. It, it scared me because what if they 
they hit the asteroid, yeah. and they redirect it into our orbit. I think they calculate that. So you yeah. they, they can hit an asteroid, but we can't watch the Pac-12 network? What do we do with <laughs> Yeah, see? There you go. There's all kinds of things like that that just don't make sense. Yep, there you go. We can do anything <laughs> except find socks or watch football games. <laughs> Everything else we got covered. All right, Bill Riley's coming up, ESPN 700. He's in Salt Lake City. He is the guy when it comes to uh, Utah athletics. Plus, uh, I got a story in the, I'll probably tell it in the 5 o'clock hour. Speaking of youth sports and parents who go overboard, this guy yesterday ended up on a uh, volleyball court helping coach third grade volleyball. And you know what? I felt good about it. I got to say, I think we should, all, uh, we should all look back to our childhood and ask ourselves if maybe we should get more involved. Uh, all that ahead, I want you to leave it here on this Friday. You got the bald-faced truth statewide on the BFT Radio Network. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano. Peter Sampson is up next with The Pulse from 6 to 7 on 750 The Game. Bill Riley, he is the voice of Utah Athletics. He hosts his own show, ESPN 700 in Salt Lake City. I go on his show all the time. He's the guy. He's the guy. If you want to talk Utah, you want to talk Salt Lake City, you want to talk Utes, Bill Riley is the guy. Let's start uh, with the atmosphere. 11 a.m. Pacific time kickoff, noon in Salt Lake City. Bill, what are the Beavers walking into tomorrow? I, I think they're going to be walking into a good atmosphere. I don't think it's going to quite be like what the Ducks walked into last year, John, because it's a day game. And but I, but I think it's going to have its homecoming here. It's supposed to be a perfect day. It'll be 65 at kickoff. Beautiful sunny skies. Uh, you'll be here tomorrow. I, I think it's just going to be a great day for football, and I think Utah's up for this game. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk this week around the team about what happened last year in Corvallis where they blew a halftime lead, their, their special teams uh, went Oregon State back in the game, and then the, then the, then the, the Beavers gashed them for 260 yards. Uh, that happens every blue moon to a Kyle Whittingham defense, but doesn't happen very often. And the coach and a lot of the guys that were on the field last year remember that. And, but they also know Oregon State's good. I mean, they, they know they saw what happened last week against USC. So they, they, this is not going to be some sort of a cakewalk, but I think that they remember, and it's a little bit of a motivator, what happened a year ago. Give us an idea, because every season's different. You get some different personnel. Obviously, there's no Devin Lloyd on that defense for Utah. But when you, you know, this year's team, the identity of this team, has it figured out who it is and what it wants to do? Yeah, defensively, it took them a game. They had some new faces, as you mentioned, Devin's in the NFL now. They had some struggles against Florida in that first game, but once they got that game behind them, they've been they've been really good. Um, linebacker Kareni Reed, he's the younger brother of Gabe Reed, who transferred in from Stanford. Both those guys are on the field together. Junior Tafuna's playing well up front. You know, the funny thing is, the strength of this defense might be the secondary, John. But we haven't seen him play anybody who throws the football on a regular basis yet. That'll come in the weeks to come with SC and, and UCLA and some schools, but everybody they've played have been run-oriented teams, including you know, the Beavs coming up tomorrow. But they, they've gotten back to who they are. But that being said, Oregon State's going to be the biggest challenge they've had. I mean, San Diego State's solid. Um, Arizona State, they're down. They, they, they run it pretty well, but they're down. We know that that, that program's in trouble right now. So I think they've, they've, they've had some time against some lesser opponents to work the kinks out to get to where they needed to be. But, but, but the game Saturday, especially for the defense, is going to be the biggest challenge they face yet. Yeah, I, I keep thinking back to week one. It was so disappointing to see the Oregon loss to Georgia, the way that went, and then 
I, I picked Utah to win at Florida. I felt good about them being down there. I know we talked that week. What happened in that week one game, and what has Utah learned from that game? Well, what happened was they, they, they cost themselves in short yardage. I mean, they had a couple of cracks at the end zone. I, you know, Not to be a, a guy that looks back, Cam Rising probably got in on one of the plays that wasn't reviewed. Uh, Tavion Thomas got stopped on the goal line, so that hurt them. Um, they weren't really able to contain. It's funny because he looked like a Heisman Trophy contender after week one. He's looked anything but since then. But Anthony Richardson, you know, they, they kind of had it. It's funny. There have been comparisons between the Florida game this year and the Oregon State game a year ago, the way the defense played. They just weren't fitting together. But the fact of the matter is, John, you know, they get to the five-yard line with three plays and Rising tried to force that ball into Dalton Kincaid who slipped and fell on his turn and it got intercepted. As much as anything else, Utah was its own worst enemy in that Florida game. They probably should have won it, even allowing Florida to run the way they did. So after the Florida loss, they basically said, all right, guys, we don't have any margin for error now if we really want to achieve some of the goals we talked about. And that was to win the Pac-12 championship again, but also perhaps take that next step. They're not out of the playoff pick yet. Another loss would certainly take them out of it. But if they run the table in the Pac-12 conference, which is a possibility, they can still hit that particular my, yeah, Utah's still my pick. Uh, for people tuning in, Bill Riley, ESPN 700, is with us. Uh, he is the voice of Utah Athletics. Uh, how much rubbernecking is going on with USC by Utah fans? Like, you know, did they tune into the Oregon State game to, to watch USC last week? Well, I think those that have the Pac-12 network certainly did. I had a little bit of an eye on it from the press box in Tempe last weekend, too, and I'll be honest, John, 17-14 is what I was expecting like midway through the second quarter of that game, not for the final score. So I was I was really impressed, you know, and I've only seen really highlights. I haven't had a chance to go back and watch the game. But, I, you know, with the Beaver defense, I mean, USC looked like the greatest show on turf for the first three weeks of the season, and the Beavs basically hold them under double digits or two double digits through almost four quarters, and they get that late touchdown. So... I think people here are taking notice of USC and kind of following them. And I think last week was a little, I think it was a little bit of a wake-up call for everybody. I think you said the same thing, too. You know, USC still very good, but, you know, maybe they're a little bit more human than we were giving them credit for the first couple of weeks. Yeah, amen to that. Bill Riley with us, ESPN 700, Salt Lake City. I want to pivot to the Pac-12 conference. You know, we talk a lot about it on this show. I know you're tuned into it. You know, we had the gloom and doom report that from CBS Sports earlier in the week. You know, the, the imminent demise of the Pac-12 conference. How did that float? How did that go over in Salt Lake City with your audience? Well, I mean, everybody takes notice of that stuff. I think, John, people just assume that when a national reporter that has a national platform reports something, that it's spot on from an accuracy standpoint. And, and I know the reporter who, who reported it. I like him a lot. He's a guest on my show sometimes. But, but to me, I just, I, I didn't, I didn't connect. It, it didn't connect for me, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? It's yes. Just, there, were, there were some things missing, and it kind of felt like some of the same stories we've seen reported nationally, not just by that outlet, but, but by some of the other outlets, too. And my stance has been throughout, and I told my listeners, you know, nobody is leaving the Pac-12 conference until they are given a final pitch and proposal from their commissioner. Nobody is leaving until they know what the offer is from whatever the media rights partners are. And Amazon and ESPN, who I think those are probably the two leaders. I'm not sure if Fox 
is part of this. It would kind of feel weird since they staged the coup this summer if they were indeed a partner. But anyway, maybe they are. Who knows? It's business at the end of the day. Cleopop said that too. But my, my point to my listeners has been, hey, you can read that stuff all you want. But, but look at where the, the information's coming from and always go back to who benefits from a story like this. And clearly the Big 12 does because somebody's trying to, seed to sow the seeds of discord and disarray and cause some chaos and get people talking. But as I told the listeners here in Salt Lake City and across the state of Utah, I just don't see anything happening, John, until Klyovkov comes back and make his, makes his pitch. And as long as that pitch is reasonable, as long as that media rights deal is reasonable for the next four to five years, I just don't see this conference breaking up into the wind because there's still an uncertainty of what the Big 12 deal is going to be. Because let's remember, the Pac-12 is losing UCLA and USC. The Big 12 is losing two bigger brands. Texas and Oklahoma together are a much bigger loss than UCLA and USC are. Because if you look at the Big 12 right now, they don't have a brand. There's not a brand school for football in that conference right now with those two schools leaving. The Pac-12 still has Oregon and Washington. Now, they're not brands like USC or Oklahoma or Texas, but they're brands. And Utah's a recent brand. So at least the Pac-12 has that. The Big 12's got lots of good basketball schools. But they don't have any football schools when Oklahoma and Texas, and Texas leave. So I just think it's so premature to make any of these conjectures, you know, all this conjecture, until we see what the deal is that Cleopatra brings back to the schools. Bill, you know, Utah's a great example of what a Mountain West Conference school can do when it's elevating into the Power Five. They have, you know, landed and hit the ground running. It is, is it possible that Utah's an outlier, or could UNLV... San Diego State, Fresno State, Boise State. Do you see any similarities to what Utah was with those with that pool, or is there one or two in there that you think, hey, maybe they could make the step? I think of those those you mentioned. I think San Diego State is the best choice. They've been excellent in football and basketball. In fact, I, I was reading their media notes a couple of weeks ago when they came here. They've got the second-best combined football, basketball, men's basketball record in the country over, like, the last six years. They've been really, really good, and they compete against the big boys. I think they've got a 7-4 and four record against the Pac-12 Conference in the last six years, too. So I, I think if you're looking at those, obviously UNLV is a market, certainly works. But, but I've lived in this part of the country, the Mountain West, now Pac-12 landscape, for 21 years. UNLV has been at the very best, average, and at the worst, abysmal in football for 21 years. And in basketball, they've been good, but they haven't been great. The run and rebels years of Jerry Tarkanian haven't resurfaced. So if I was choosing between the three, I think San Diego State would be the one for me. The one you didn't mention is SMU. I would actually like the Ponies a little bit more than even Fresno and, and UNLV. The market of Dallas, they've got good athletics, football, and basketball, some decent tradition, too. So if I was doing two, I'd look at San Diego State and maybe SMU. But if I was only doing one, it would most certainly be San Diego State. Yeah, I think the the short-term plan is going to be, they. I think they want to see what the UC regents do to UCLA. And is there, a, is there a pipe dream chance that UCLA reverses course and comes back? And if they do, you just add San Diego State and you call it good. But if they add SMU, Bill, do they have to look at, adding Rice, University of Texas, San Antonio, 
do they have to, you know, Tulane, do they have to give SMU a travel partner, or could you pull that off and just go, look, everybody in the Pac-12 gets to recruit Texas now? Yeah, I, I think that's what you do. I just, Rice would bring nothing, and it's a tiny, small school. They're not good in basketball. They're not good in football. They're decent in baseball. I, I think you just say, hey, if you guys want to do this, we're happy to have you, but you're going to be the easternmost school in our footprint. We've got the mountains covered with Utah, um, you know, and then, and then we're a West Coast. So if you want to do it, we want you in here. But I, I'm not sure I would add a travel partner like a UTSA or even a Rice. This season is interesting. Utah made the Rose Bowl, won the conference championship last year. Feels like there was some unfinished business. That's what people were saying. Is it a return to Vegas or bust for this season? Uh, meaning, if the Utes don't get back to the title, it be a monumental disappointment this year? Yes, it will. It, it, it absolutely will. They brought back their all-conference quarterback. They brought back 16 starters on the football team. This is a, and they, and there's so much, there's more talent in this program, John, than there's ever been, top to bottom. The coaching staff was intact. Um, yeah, if they, I, I would say that. And we asked this question on my radio show before the year. You know, what's what constitutes a good season for Utah? And some people said playoffs. Some people said Rose Bowl. But I, I think the very bare minimum is getting back to Vegas and playing in the Pac-12 championship game. All right, let's pivot again back to Saturday's game. By the way, how is a day game crowd different at Rice Eccles than maybe a 7.30 p.m. crowd? Because I don't well, I think it's, yeah, go ahead. I think it's like most places. I mean, you just you haven't had as much time to kind of get yourself in the mood, if you will. The tailgate, you know, tailgating at 7 a.m. is not quite the same as starting your tailgate at 11 for an 8 o'clock kick. So um, students probably dive quite as, uh, is, as in gear as they would for a later in the day kick. So I, I just think it's, it's going to be a great crowd. It's going to be a great day. They'll sell out. They'll be there. But it, you're just, it's going to take you a minute to kind of get into full throat and be in the mode where when it's at 8 o'clock, you've kind of had all day long to build toward it. Is there any shot Utah looks past Oregon State, or does the loss last year sort of eliminate that possibility? There's not a chance. Uh, not a chance. I mean, if, if Oregon State wins tomorrow, I don't think it's going to be because Utah looked past them. The loss last year, plus the start this year, I mean, they're, 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 they're three wins plus a whisker away from beating SC last weekend. Now, if they got their doors blown off by SC last weekend, maybe you can say that. Maybe people would say, well, Fresno ain't very good. That was a lucky win on the road. Boise certainly ain't very good. But they beat those teams, and they darn near beat, beat USC. I think the combination of loss last year and, and what, what, what Oregon State's done, especially last week against SC, because let's be fair, you know this, in the Pac-12, when somebody plays SC, everybody's kind of peeking over and taking a look at it. And when you play SC close or you beat SC, that makes news. So I, I don't think there's going to be a look past factor anymore. I appreciate that. Bill Riley, ESPN 700. Uh, before you go, Cam Rising. Yeah, you know, he had kind of a bad moment in that opening week, but he has been so good for so long. Wh what level is he playing at right now? I think he's beginning. I don't think he's quite back to where he was mid to late last season, John, but I think he's getting close. It was about this time last year that the Utah offense really began to gel and take off. Now, it's going to be interesting. His favorite target is Frank Keefe. And you, the news around the conference this week was Keefe tore his ACL last week against, um, against ASU. 
So it'll be interesting to see how Utah and Rising go because those two tight ends, and Keithy was a little bit of a wide receiver too, were Rising's favorite targets. So it'll be interesting to see without Keithy out there how he plays, but Cam's beginning to get into that rhythm and putting up those real efficient numbers. And he's getting, I think he's just on the precipice of getting back to where he was at the end of last year. Bill Riley, ESPN 700, thank you. Good follow on Twitter. You should be following him. I appreciate you, man. Uh, I will see you in the press box. Thanks, John. Love that interview with Bill Riley, ESPN 700, Salt Lake City. We got the flavor of the game. Oregon State going to Utah tomorrow. 11 a.m. Pacific time kickoff. The Ducks will kick off at 8 p.m. So you got some time in between those two games. How will you spend it? Well, that's up to you. But I can uh, tell you, you could spend it by listening to a podcast of this radio show. Maybe on your drive, if you're going down to Eugene, put on a podcast of the show. Or if you're mowing the lawn, you're out in the yard, you're at a sporting event, a youth sporting event, grab the podcast, stick it in your ear. You can do that. Coming up, our five at five. Anna will join me. We'll talk about that. Plus, I had a youth, I had a brush with youth sports coaching yesterday. I'll talk about it in the five o'clock hour. It's the happy hour. Plus, what's on tap, what you should be watching again. All of that's still ahead, right here in the Bald Face Truth Radio Network. Leave it here. B F F T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. It's Friday. You're in the happy hour. I appreciate that everybody is here, whether you're listening in Portland on 750 The Game or in Eugene on Fox Sports Eugene, 1050 AM. Shout out to the people in Eugene and Roseburg, those of you in Douglas County on 1490 The Score. Thank you for being here in the happy hour. And, of course, Klamath Falls, 960 AM. And if you're a podcaster, I don't know where you are. You could be in Canada. You could be in the Dominican Republic. Wherever you are, whatever time it is, I appreciate you being here for the happy hour. Every 5 o'clock hour, we start with the 5 at 5. Anna, are you ready for this? You're all stretched out. Yeah, I'm in an athletic stance. All right, that's what we're looking for is we we want to be in, we want to be ready when we do this. Let it rip. The 5 at 5. Well, let's start with this scary story that everybody's been talking about. Everybody talking about the Miami Dolphins Thursday night football. For those of you who were watching, it was a scary moment as Tua Tungovailoa, the quarterback for the Miami Dolphins, was taken to a local hospital in the wake of the game. He suffered head and neck injuries in the second quarter when he was sacked. The Dolphins said shortly before halftime that Tua was conscious and he had movement in his extremities at the hospital. But uh, he was released to the hospital. He went back with the team to South Florida. He's supposed to be in good spirits. But it's scary stuff. Tua hit the back of his head when he was sacked. His arms appeared to seize up immediately. He remained on the field for 10 minutes before he was loaded on a stretcher and taken away. There's now some question over whether or not the NFL's concussion protocols were followed in the wake of last Sunday's game where Tua apparently... Uh, may or may not have been concussed. So keep an eye on this. The Dolphins are saying that they don't mess with concussion protocol. Josh McDaniel, the coach there, saying as long as I'm the head coach, we're not going to have a problem with this. 
but still, you know, it, it's really scary stuff. And Tua and uh, his teammates and Dolphins fans who are watching it all disturbed by it. It's Mike McDaniel, coach of the Dolphins, not Josh McDaniel. But nevertheless, he says they take it seriously. Anna, number two in our five at five. What do you got? Is the WNBA coming to Portland? They're actively considering Portland as an expansion market. Both WNBA Commissioner Kathy Engelbird and Adam Silver have responded to Senator Ron Wyden's letter. He is pushing for WNBA expansion to Portland. Very interesting. Kathy Engelbert's letter says that uh, they have a lot more work to do, but please know that Portland is a market that we hold in high regard and are actively considering. The other letter from Adam Silver says... It's interesting. He is saying that the NBA is very appreciative of the community's fantastic support of the Trailblazers over the last 50-plus years, but that Commissioner Engelbert and her team are continuing to evaluate future plans for WNBA expansion. He says he has no doubt Portland is on the list of cities under consideration. Is this for real, I wonder? I, I, right now, I'm reading that, and I'm going, Let's. where do we get tickets? Let's do this. It makes sense. Like, you could play games in Eugene. You could play games in Corvallis. They could barnstorm across the state of Oregon and rope in all of those diehard women's college basketball fans. And look, we get a team in the state of Oregon. You know, I hate to say this, but like maybe Kelly Graves or Scott Ruick, somebody like that ends up coaching it. That's a good one. WNBA looking or actively evaluating Portland or considering Portland. Number three in our five at five, uh, soccer legend Abby Wambach told ESPN that she is divesting herself from a drug company that is backed by Brett Favre and is at the center of a Mississippi welfare fraud case. The World Cup winner and two-time gold medalist who is in the National Soccer Hall of Fame says that she's done with Favre. Favre has come under fire. Lawsuit filed by the state of Mississippi says that $2.1 million that was supposed to go to welfare recipients was instead directed to Odyssey Health. This is a uh, company that Brett Favre is involved in, and of course, uh, Brett Favre getting his day in the public limelight. Favre joined the company in 2014, and by 2018, he became the largest outside investor and stockholder in the company. This is messy. Abby Wambach says she wants no part of it. Anna, number four. Junior welterweight boxer Luis Quinones died last night just five days after going to the hospital after a knockout loss in Colombia. He was only 25 years old. He was declared brain dead on Thursday but was still connected to a respirator until his passing was announced at midnight. Quinones and his opponent engaged in a back-and-forth fight and in the eighth round, Munoz lost his mouth guard and the referee sent Quinones to a neutral corner while Munoz was getting his mouth guard back. Quinones was on wobbly legs in the ring, and at that point, when the fight continued, after a punch, Quinones was knocked down. He was put on a stretcher and taken to the hospital, and he has succumbed to his injuries. Ugh, sad stuff. 25 years old. Way, way, way too young. Finally, fifth in our five at five, Blazer fans. You're going to see something new on the Blazers jersey this season, maybe. Blazers issued a news release today saying they're launching a search to identify a new jersey patch partner. They're ending their relationship 
with Storm X. No other details, but Storm X allows popular cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and others uh, to be uh, to be traded and earned. The way that you earn it is by adding or enabling a browser extension and then shopping at eBay, Microsoft, Uber, Nike. You know, Storm X has come under fire. People are uh, wondering whether uh, in that crypto world it will survive. Uh, and apparently we're getting uh, an indication that, you know, it may be in trouble or the Blazers just don't want anything to do with it. Blazers launching a search to identify a new Jersey patch partner, ending their relationship with Storm X. That's the five at five. Five biggest things, kind of, sort of, going on in the world of sports. Let's go back to Tua and the Miami Dolphins last night. Uh, scary moment on Thursday Night Football. Dolphins fans, football fans, parents of people who play football, we all know that uh, the attitudes and the information that we have today about concussions, concussion protocol, and other things have shifted. I thought it was really interesting that you know uh, ESPN is really into this and on top of this, and I think it's interesting that the Miami Dolphins now find themselves uh, you know, with the Players Association initiating an inquiry. When we see something like this happen in sports, you know, it – it does remind me of what we didn't know in the 1990s, even 80s, 70s, 60s, of course, where we, we saw tremendous damage, League of Denial damage. Uh, the, the brain studies that are going on from you know Boston University are just fascinating and groundbreaking stuff. But this was scary last night, and the Miami Dolphins have better have handled Tua's uh, Sunday injury or his condition properly or the players association is going to be all over this anna the wnba to portland would we take the girls would we go to games are, are we a season ticket holder or just a casual observer or what are we oh I, I we would totally take the girls to games i would be super excited to see that i always love the opportunity to show the girls uh women and uh girls you know older girls who are playing at such high levels like i think that's a really important thing for them to see in person and to inspire them to engage in their athletics. Um, going back to the Tua thing for a moment, I, I, I think this is really worth a discussion because so many people are criticizing the Miami Dolphins for how they've handled this situation. And it's it's an interesting conversation because other people are still reiterating the idea that, you know, these are professional football players who sign on to play what they know to be a high contact, potentially violent sport. And that, you know, some people are saying that Tua himself needed to uh, make decisions on his own behalf. But you mentioned Boston University and that guy, the CTE expert, Chris Nowinski, is chiming in big time today saying that the Dolphins did not take care of him, that they would put him out there. Uh, he's recommending that Tua not go back even and play for the, Dolph the Dolphins because he's saying this was not just a failure of the medical team that this was a failure of the coaching staff and a failure of ownership. You can't leave the athlete in the position where the athlete is the gatekeeper on this one. Like, I, I definitely think the athlete's input is important, especially if an athlete's saying, I can't go. But you can't make the athlete the gatekeeper. The NFL has a protocol in place, and let's be real, this was a league that was in denial. Book was written about it. Movie was made about it. Uh, the study that uh, we've had Nowinski on the show, and he's talked about the studies that they have done with various brains and brain injuries. Uh, 
it it was scary. And and even the footage today that we're seeing of him uh, on the field that way, uh, I do think it's one of the contributing factors in that we have seen participation in youth football diminish since this information has gone public. But I'm not going to go as far as to indict the Dolphins before we have more information on what they knew, saw, what their doctors saw, what kind of protocol was followed. Um, again, uh, the coach of the Dolphins saying that that's not something they mess with. Um, that's how you get yourself fired. That's how you get yourself sued. But we all know if you leave it to the players, the players are going to want to be on the field. That's where players want to do. Players want to play. How many fingers? Do you know your birthday? As we know now, those are the wrong questions to be asking. You just have to tread lightly with any kind of injury to the brain, any kind of uh, hint of a concussion, you need to tread lightly and you need to immediately go into protocol. And people laugh and they joke about concussion protocol all the time, but this is not a laughing or joking matter. Uh, on your WNBA thing, I don't think we're a season ticket holder. I think we are somebody who would go to a game because we'd want our girls to see that. And But I, I just don't know if we would be there every game, every night. I think some people would, though. I think this is the right state. I think the success of Oregon and Oregon State women's college basketball has been uh, huge. It's been a, a big deal. What about the jersey patch sponsor for the Blazers? StormX is out, the crypto company. I heard a lot of complaints about StormX. There were fraud complaints. There were other things going on. I think the bla- I think the noise was just too much for the Blazers, and I think this is a wise decision for them to pivot. They say they're exploring other jersey patch options. What company should be on the Blazers jersey? Should it be a Pacific Northwest company? It can't be an apparel company because, like, Columbia is not going to jump on a jersey that's made by a, uh, a competing athletic provider. But Little Dutch Bros on the jersey? Something regional. I, I vote for something regional. Leatherman Tools, Dutch Bros, something like that. I'm sure the Blazers are already exploring this. Oh, yeah, I like that, too. But, I, you know, what else comes to mind? <laughs> Microsoft, Amazon. Uh, you know, I'm thinking about the... Companies that have proximity to, to Jody Allen, uh, could it be, you know, some major, like, cannabis dispensary that oh, decides that they're going to sponsor this? I don't know if the Blazers would do that. Uh, too new? Too soon? Uh, but, yeah, you know, they, I, I think it's wise for the Blazers to create some distance uh, with Storm X because, in the end, they've got to protect the brand, right? And if there are questions about it, they need to create that gap. Yeah, it's interesting because the naming rights for an arena, like, you know, we see American Airlines Arena or, you know, Moda Center or whatever as you go around the country, you know, Providence Park, you see, you know, big brands, right? But I think you have to be more careful with what's on the jersey when you are a team, when you're an entity, because every photograph of every player, every game that's played, every time a player in uniform shows up, it's right there with the name of the city, the player's likeness. It's right in that conversation. So I think you have to tread very carefully with these Jersey uh, sponsorships. I think yeah, I think it's even more visible than the arena naming rights and all that stuff. So I think, you know, I, I don't know if we're ready for a cannabis provider. Like Ricky Williams' company is Heisman, H-I-G-H, Heisman, like hi. Uh, his company is Heisman.com if you want to check it out. But he was on the show earlier in the week. It's interesting to me if they go and they pivot that direction, because if they do, like, man, this was an organization, the Yellow Hummer, all the, you know, Zebo, Darius Miles. It, it wasn't that long ago that this was kind of a smoky joke, Cheech and Chong jokes running wild, but 
Now, if you're the Blazers, I think I, I first would call, I would call Joth over at Dutch Bros, and I would be like, hey, uh, this fits. We, we're in Oregon. You're, you started in Oregon. This fits. But there are some other candidates that are out there, and, of course, they'll go to the highest bidder. But also, like, I'm concerned that this whole thing just began last year. Like, the fact that they made all these jerseys and just inked the deal, I think it was, like, in July of last year, that's a very short-lived relationship and a really big commitment to make for such a short period of time. I heard complaints from consumers when the Blazers chose StormX. I got emails from people who said, this. I did business with the company. It wasn't a good experience for me. And I thought, oh, this is just normal stuff. But I kind of wonder in that crypto space about, you know, uh, you want a tent pole. You know, you want a reliable tent pole company when it comes to your jersey. Leave it here. You got the bald face truth statewide. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. One of my first newspaper stops was in Santa Cruz, California, and there was a bar that was around the corner from the newspaper that was called 99 Bottles of Beer. It's, it's probably still there, and they literally had 99 varieties of beer available on tap at this bar, and they had a variety of fun things that were going on in this bar. Like, one of the things was um, you, uh, you could try to drink all 99 beers, not on the same day. But you could try to check them off the list. And if you drank all 99 beers, they would put your name. They would engrave it on this wooden wall. And, you know, there were hundreds and hundreds of names on this wooden wall. And also the the bar itself happened to be located on a city block. And it was mid-block. And one of the things they contests they did is uh, they would have you chug a beer and then run out the door and run around the city block. And you, they would time how fast you could do it. And they had, like, the, the record time on the wall. A lot of fun things going on. And, Anna, you brought it to my attention that the New York Yankees were trying to set records. Uh, the Yankees, uh, you know, are still probably figuring out what they have in 28-year-old Harrison Bader. But apparently, uh, he, he channeled his inner stone-cold Steve Austin in the Yankees clubhouse after they beat the Blue Jays earlier this week, and he chugged three beers simultaneously. Epic beer chug. I mean, if, you have see, if you've seen the video, he literally has three Budweiser cans. Another teammate offers up a little more, and, uh, you know, the Gold Glover, who's only played seven games for the Yankees since being acquired from the Cardinals in a trade, he only hit two thirty eight, but he's good in the field. He's also apparently good chugging a beer was that impressive or what? Or or is it a little disturbing? Uh, a little of both. I mean, it's just kind of one of those classic testosterone-filled scenes. Side note, I didn't know that, like, regular Budweiser and now being referred to as Bud Heavy as opposed to Bud Light. I had to Google that one, only to learn that it's just the original Budweiser. Uh, but you were telling that story, the 99 bottles of beer story, to some friends the other night. So when I saw the article about Harrison Bader uh, doing this, that's immediately what I thought of was like the 20-something-year-old version of John Canzano engaging in that bar's challenge and the, the little jaw that you made around the block. 
Yeah, the, it didn't go well. I got to tell you, like, uh, what they don't tell you, you're, you're chugging a beer and then you're racing out the front door of the bar, running around the city block, and then racing back in after you've gone all the way around the block. And then, of course, they're seemingly, they're egging you on before you leave. And then when you get back, everybody's relatively unimpressed because you didn't come anywhere near the record time. Uh, or you're throwing up because you drank the beer too fast. But on my jaunt around the block, it was a very, it was a surreal experience because I, it was a lot of buildup for it. Okay. First of all, I went with a very light beer. It was akin to Coors Light or Spud Light or something like that because I thought, go with a lighter beer. You're about to run around a city block at full speed. I also, you don't think about how big a city block is before you're actually running it with a full pint of beer just freshly guzzled down your, uh, down your throat. And so uh, you don't think about that. But I remember I went out the door, and I was feeling pretty good as I took off. And I went around the city block, and about halfway through the block, there's a movie theater. So you're in downtown Santa Cruz. You're on what is, I think, Pacific Avenue in downtown Santa Cruz. So there's a lot of hippies, a lot of activity a lot of people walking around on like a Friday or Saturday night or whatnot. So as you're sprinting, you're also kind of looking like somebody who's grabbed someone's purse and is making a run for it. And you're running amid other people or you're having to kind of run around people who are out for a stroll or whatnot. So this was really weird, though, because as a sports writer living in that city, one of the things that I was well aware of was Glen Allen Hill. Glenn Allen Hill, who was in the big leagues with the Giants and then the Cubs, happened to have attended Santa Cruz High School, and he lived there. That was his hometown. People remember Glenn Allen Hill because he was the guy who had the arachnophobia episode when he was on the road, and he like literally went through a window trying to get away from spiders, or he was dreaming about spiders or something. Yeah, Anna, you will relate to that. Anna is, you are deathly afraid of spiders. Google sometime arachnophobia and Glenn Allen Hill. But anyway, I digress. I was running around the block, and I got a full thing of beer in my stomach, chugging along with me. And I look up at the movie theater, and the movie's being let out as I'm approaching the halfway point. I could see people exiting the theater like the movie just got out. And I looked, and I met, I locked eyes with one Glenn Allen Hill who was walking out of the theater, who I had interviewed and I knew and whatever, I didn't have time to stop and explain to him that I was trying to break a record, an American record on this jaunt around the block. But I will never forget, and he will probably never think of me the same, because what he saw was me hightailing it around the block, probably like a punk, and trying to get back to 99 bottles of beer in record time. So there it was. Are you, are you reading about, you're now reading about arachnophobia. I am. So he had an extreme case of arachnophobia one night. He was in a semi-conscious state. This was back in 1990. He jumped out of bed, ran into another room, crashing through a glass table and suffering bruises on his feet and legs and elbows. But later, now this is interesting, he claimed that that episode was more related to stress and diet than his insect phobia. He said spiders just happened to be what I dreamt about. I don't, I'm not buying that. I think that's a, that's a full-on... You relate to that? Anytime there's a spider in my household, one of the girls would go, Dad, I know exactly what it is. It's I, And I think about Glen Ellen Hill every time I see a spider now. So a lot of you probably remember that story. But uh, 
I, I never again drank a pint of beer and ran around a city block trying to set a record. Uh, you'll only do that once because it ain't no damn fun. And, oh, by the way, we were talking on the other, the other day on the show about Guinness World Records. We attempted the saltine cracker challenge last night. The world record for most saltine crackers consumed in a minute is 10. Uh, I told this to the 6-year-old and the 8-year-old. They both attempted to eat two saltine crackers in a minute. They just barely got it under the wire. Anna, how many did you? How many saltine crackers did you eat? Because you tried to break the world record. I consumed four, and I was halfway through five when the time ran out. There you have it. She's not a world record holder, uh, but saltine thanks us all for trying it. Uh, part the the big reason why it doesn't work is you just that those crackers just suck up all the moisture in your mouth. It, it's nearly impossible. And oh, by the way, you have to eat them. One at a time. I want you to leave it here. Still ahead, what's on tap? But up next, I'll tell you about youth sports coaching, why it's important and why I'm so appreciative to those out there that are working and helping kids, little league teams, youth basketball teams, volleyball teams, soccer teams. That's next. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I had an interesting experience yesterday after the radio show. I was summoned, probably like a lot of you who have kids who play youth sports. Uh, my wife uh, was at soccer practice with our six-year-old, and I was summoned to do the volleyball pickup uh, of the third grader, the eight-year-old. And I was sent over to, uh, you know, to the gym, and it was about fifteen, twenty-minute drive over to the gym to pick pick her up. But I, but I decided I would go early because. I like seeing my kid in the wild. You know, I like peeking in if my kid's in a classroom and I happen to be on her school campus, peeking in, see who she is, what she's about, what she's on school. Or, you know, if you've ever pulled up and watched your kid on the playground and they don't know you're watching them, it's an interesting exercise. Um, I, I don't think that ever gets old as a parent. But I wanted to go over to the gym because I wanted to see her play a little volleyball. She's just learning the sport. She's playing CYO. For people who know the CYO system, that, that uh, Catholic Youth Organization is a great organization. You don't have to have your kid in one of the schools to play CYO sports. You can just check it out. And uh, while our oldest played multiple years of volleyball and got better and better and better, and track, she ran CYO track as well, uh, this was the first experience for our 8-year-old to get an exposure to the empire that Sister Krista, shout out to Sister Krista, Sister Krista, you know that song? Sister Christian overtime has come, and you know that you're the only one to say, okay.
Vista, who is in charge of the CYO sports scene, I think about that Night Ranger song. I know it's Sister Christian. I know that. But I uh, every time I hear that song, man, I go right to, you know, Sister Krista. For people who don't know, she is the nun who runs the CYO organization, the Empire. She's in charge of that thing. She does a terrific job running it. But this, So this was, I digress, this was the third grader's first experience or first exposure to a CYO sport, and she's playing volleyball. She's on a third and fourth grade team, so it's a blended team, so she's really playing fourth grade volleyball as a third grader. She's never played before. So the name of the game for anybody who's watched third and fourth grade volleyball is serving. If your team gets the ball over the net, you win the game. Yes, they teach passing. They teach the fundamentals. They want kids to know the sport. But it literally, if all you did at practice was serve, 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 you probably could game the system and win a bunch of games because it is just about serving. You you know, and I and the game I watched last weekend, I had the great fortune of seeing that terrific matchup last weekend. Um, my kids' team had one player who served five in a row over the net. Like, that's that's lights out. That's like the Nolan Ryan. That's like the Tom Brady of serving in third and fourth grade volleyball, CYO volleyball. So serving is the name of the game. But I wanted to go over to the gym and kind of watch her practice, peek in at her. I'm picking her up anyway. Might as well show up 30, 40 minutes early. Just watch a little bit of the practice. So I arrive at this elementary school gym. And I kind of slowly come in. It's quiet. I can hear the bouncing of balls. I can hear the coach instructing them. And there's no other parents there. I'm the only parent that's showing up early. So it's a little bit awkward. But I walk in and I kind of take a seat on one of the benches and start watching practice. And uh, I'm watching my kids serve. They happen to be working on serving. And she served one over the net. And then she served another one that didn't get over the net. And then she served one that got over the net. And I was like, hey, that's pretty good. Like, you know, keep working on that. Well, the coach walked over eventually. And she said, hey, Mark or Joe or Jim or, and I said, John. Yeah. She goes, John. Yeah. She goes, do you mind helping out? Now, what she didn't know is that I grew up playing sports. I grew up uh, playing youth sports. I played Little League. I played soccer. I played like 11 sports in junior high. I played three sports to start in high school. Ended up just playing football and baseball towards the end. But I went off to college, played two sports. And, you know, I, you want to ask me if I want to jump in? I'm in. So I got up off the bench, and I said to her, I said, look, uh, I said I coached a little CYO volleyball myself years ago with the oldest daughter. So I get what you're trying to do here. Let's do it. And she says, okay, you know, come up with a drill. And so I said, look, what, they, what the kids need are touches. The worst thing in any youth sports practice that you can ever see, and I see it all the time, it's the cardinal sin. The worst thing you can do as a coach is have your kids standing around doing nothing. You put them in a single file line and have them come up one at a time, pass them the ball, pass it back to you, is the worst thing. Now, if you're there alone as a coach, I understand why you would do something like that. I'm not saying this coach was doing that, but I'm just saying, even in a Little League setting, I'll drive by fields and I'll see uh, you know, eight players standing around while coach with baseball bat is hitting ground balls one at a time to players on the team. That's not a productive use of time in a youth sports practice. If you can have, that's why like in, in spring training in major league teams, they'll have you know a, a coach off to the side who's hitting ground balls to the shortstop, another one off to the other side is hitting ground balls to the second baseman, somebody else is throwing batting practice, and the outfielders and infielders are reacting in live time. But between pitches, what are they doing? Everybody's hitting ground balls. 
Everybody's fielding. Everybody's going through the motions. Like, touches, touches, touches. That's that's how you get better in a practice. So if you're coaching a youth sports team and you look up and you find that your players are standing around, that is a big red flag. Like, get them moving. Get them in action. Get touches for them. So when I told her, I said, let's divide them into two groups. There were seven players there. I'll take four. You take three. And let's just rapid fire have them work on passing the ball. Like you lob them the ball, they pass it back to you. Lob, and then they go back to the end of the line. But let's do it rapid fire. And so we did. Like, you know, until the, I was like, I literally broke a sweat doing this because, you know, as they're passing the ball back to me, I'm rapidly grabbing a ball and then passing it again to them or lobbing it to them. And then we went into another drill that, that, uh, I, that I used to use where we put three players on each side. And you kind of toss the ball into play, and you have one team hit the ball over the net, and then the other team has to try to return it. And then when the ball hits the ground, you yell, rotate, and everybody rotates. And it's fast moving, fast moving. The idea is to keep the kids moving, to keep them reacting, to uh, you know show them spatially where they are on the court, all that stuff that, that nobody really cares about but becomes important in you know third grade, fourth grade youth volleyball. But here's my big takeaway. My kid who I had never coached before. This is the first time I was in any coaching kind of coach-pupil setting with her. My kid was delighted. I could tell. She was smiling. She was happy I was there. I was involved. I felt like I was helping the other kids. I felt like I was helping the coach because she was shorthanded. She was there by herself. And I left feeling really gratified about it. Like, I was just grateful that I had an opportunity to be present and be there. And it got me thinking about my own father and my own youth sports experiences. My dad coached some of my teams. He didn't coach them all because we had four kids in our family. So he would kind of rotate around. He'd coach my brother's team, coach my team, coach my sister, you know, work with us in the backyard, whatnot. But the times that my dad coached my team, it meant a lot to me. He was there. He was present. He was knowledgeable as a former professional baseball player. He had a lot of expertise and experience, and he was sharing it with us and a lot of little things. But but better than anything else, what I got from my dad in those experiences was just that my dad was invested in what I was doing. He was there. He was present. You know, he was probably knocking off work early to come coach a, you know, 11- and 12-year-old youth baseball team. And and I, it got me thinking, like, you know, maybe I need to come out of retirement and coach this kid as an assistant coach next season or something. Or maybe even my younger, my six-year-old who's playing soccer, you know, maybe I should be a volunteer coach there. Maybe it's something you could think about as well. Now, I've always used the excuse that, hey, college football season is tough for me. I'm gone a lot on the weekends. I travel on a Saturday. I'm getting off a plane, getting on a plane, going here or there. Like, you know, I hate missing games. But these practices, by and large, are held at night, and we know there's a shortage of gym space. They're held during the week, at 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock at night. I'm not practicing during this radio show, practicing generally after it. But it, it's just given me, I guess, a perspective that I'm thinking about with youth sports and involvement in youth sports. I appreciate everybody out there who's listening, whether you're a parent, a grandparent, or an uncle, or an aunt, or a brother, or a sister, or just somebody who has decided to volunteer their time to either coach a team or be an assistant coach or be a team parent or just support your your uh, nieces and nephews or grandchildren or whatever it is you're doing. I appreciate your involvement. But beyond that and more important than that, I'll bet you those kids do too. Coming up, we're going to tell you what you need to be watching this weekend. That's right. 
College football in full force starting tonight with a Pac-12 game and going throughout the weekend. Plus, some big NFL games and an honorary captain on Monday Night Football that should ring a bell for you if you live in the state of Oregon. I want you to leave it here. You got the bald-faced truth statewide. I'm happy that you're here. I'm going to take you to break with some Night Ranger. With more, leave it here. You got the bald face truth statewide. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I wrote about this the other day at johnconzano.com, but a regular refrain in our household goes like this. Anybody seen the remote? Anybody seen the remote control? I don't know if you have kids. I have three daughters. And uh, we continually lose either the television remote control or the Apple TV remote control. That one's tricky. That one's small. I wonder if Apple did that intentionally. Do you think they... Did that intentionally with the remote, made it all sleek and small because they know you would lose it. Then you'd have to go into the store and buy another one. I don't know. Just the conspiracy theorist in me thinking about the remote controls. But what we did uh, several years ago after continually digging into the sofa cushions, looking under the couch, uh, looking next to the TV. Sometimes the remote is right where it's supposed to be, but we're not expecting it to be there. So it's really not anybody's fault. But it happens. We lose the remote. But several years ago... My wife bought one of those Bluetooth tracking sticker devices. You know, the devices that some parents put on their kids' backpacks so they can track them, uh, or their car keys, or their cell phone. We attached it to the remote control, the specifically the Apple remote control in our household. Now, I understand you can use your iPhone to connect to your Apple TV, but that's beside the point. Uh, when you lose the remote control, you feel like you've lost control. Like, literally, we've gone several days sometimes where we lose the remote, we couldn't find it, and then we just decided we're not just we're not going to watch TV for the next two or three days. Like nobody was that motivated to go hunting for it. So uh, we eventually located it, and we put one of those Bluetooth tracking devices. I think it was a tile or something like that on the remote. And now when we lose the remote control, we just you know beep and we find it, and it chirps at us, and then we dig into the seat cushions and we find the damn thing, and. This has solved a major problem in my life, a first world problem. Hashtag first world problems. But it solved that problem, and so I no longer have to hunt and pack and try to find the remote control. That brings us to a segment of radio we do every Friday. I think this is a public service, so we do it. Now, it's time for What's on Tap and What's on TV at the Independent on the BFT. Well, let's start with those Pac-12 games. Let's do it. Washington's at UCLA tonight, 7.30 on ESPN. You'll want to be there for that. On Saturday, tomorrow, Pac-12 Network's Oregon State is at Utah, 11 a.m. That one's 
uh, going to be interesting and fun. Cows at Washington State at 2.30 on the Pac-12 Networks. Colorado and Arizona, what might be Carl Durrell's final game as the head coach at Colorado, 6.30 on the Pac-12 Networks. Arizona State's at USC at 7.30 on ESPN. Then finally, the nightcap. Stanford at Autzen Stadium playing the Oregon Ducks, 8 o'clock, FS1. That takes care of your Saturday. Let's move to Sunday. If you want to check out uh, the early NFL game, the Vikings and the Saints, well, they're playing overseas. That game's going to happen at 6.30 in the morning. Oh, dark 30. If you want to tune in on the NFL Network, Vikings and Saints playing a game. Uh, If you are interested in the Seahawks game, that's a 10 a.m. start at Detroit. The Seahawks will be playing on Fox. Justin Herbert and the Chargers will be at the Texans also at 10 a.m. on CBS. Pay attention to that one. For those of you interested in the Sunday night game, it's Chiefs Buccaneers. Tom Brady, Patrick Mahomes, 520 on NBC. And, of course, the Monday night game, Rams at the San Francisco 49ers on ESPN. That's a 515 kick on Monday night. Uh, There's a fun thing going on on Monday night as well as Dave Wilcox, the former Oregon Duck great, the pride of Eastern Oregon, the father to Cal coach Justin Wilcox, he turned 80 years old yesterday. 80! Does that make you feel old if you're an Oregon Duck fan who remembers watching and rooting for Dave Wilcox? Well, the seven-time NFL Pro Bowl linebacker will be an honorary captain on Monday night for Monday Night Football for the 49ers in their home game against the Rams. So congratulations to Dave Wilcox, who turned 80 years old yesterday. Bet he could still play. I bet his son could suit him up in one of those Cal uniforms, and he'd run around and make plays at 80 years old. The eyes, they don't lie. Dave Wilcox, happy birthday to you. Uh, So big sports slate going off over the weekend. Uh, The Pac-12 games, of course I want to watch Stanford and Oregon on FS1 at uh, 8 o'clock on tomorrow night. I'll watch that one. I'm going to peek in at Arizona State-USC just because I want to see how USC and Caleb Williams are performing in that 7.30 game on ESPN. Uh, I will probably not watch much of the Colorado-Arizona game, but I'll track the score because, as I wrote today at johnconzano.com, I think this could be Carl Durrell's last game as the head coach of Colorado. He has struggled to score points this season. I think, you know, the offensive woes are the biggest problem for Colorado. They don't have a quarterback. They've really struggled in that respect. But when you look at, you know, the Buffaloes this season and their four losses— They scored 13, 10, 7, and 17 points in four games this season. I just don't think that they're going to score a whole bunch against Arizona, but this this could be it for Carl Durrell. I think if uh, Arizona blows them out of the stadium, I think you put Rick George, the athletic director there at Colorado, in a really difficult position if you're Carl Durrell. I mean, I don't think he has much choice. You don't want to come back, go back home, and have the fans, fans chanting, fire Carl for the rest of the season. But Arizona presents an opportunity for Colorado. Like, you know, Colorado's going to start the freshman quarterback, uh, you know, and and they're going to try to go out and score some points against an Arizona team that has been very up and down. Had a bad week last week against Cal. But uh, the difference between Colorado and Arizona, to me, is the transfer portal. You know, Arizona has reached into the portal. 21 players on this Arizona team, Jed Fish, brought in via the transfer portal. Colorado has not done that and hasn't done it at the quarterback position. Inexplicably. Like, when you look at transfer quarterbacks in the Pac-12 conference, only Colorado 
Stanford, and UCLA will start quarterbacks this weekend who didn't arrive via transfer. So nine of the 12 Pac-12 schools have their quarterback as a transfer. And we talked about it with Jonathan Smith yesterday. It's it's the name of the game. Of course, you want to bring in a talented freshman and you want to develop them, but uh, it's what everybody's doing, and it's the quickest path to fix a glaring problem on your roster. And I think the teams that have struggled this season in, in spots have struggled because they don't get good quarterback play. Uh, the other games I'll pay attention to, I'm curious about the Cal-Washington State game because I want to see what Washington State looks like as a bounce back. That game's on the Pac-12 Networks at 2.30. But I want to see what Washington State looks like coming off the loss against Oregon. And I don't know what to do with Cal. Like, I've been really good on my picks this season. I think I'm like 30-8 and eight picking games straight up. I think three of those losses have been Cal games. I just, for whatever reason, cannot figure out Cal. And then I'll be at the Oregon State-Utah game in Salt Lake City. 11 a.m. kickoff Pacific time, 12 noon Salt Lake City local time. Be really curious to see what the atmosphere is and what it's like inside Rice-Eccles Stadium. Uh, if you follow me on johnconzano.com, you know I've been doing photo galleries. I've hired photographers across the Pac-12 footprint, and they've been shooting games all season. I've hired a photographer who's going to Salt Lake City to shoot that game. If you want to see all the photos and feel like you're in the stadium, get that atmosphere, make sure you check out johnconzano.com at some point tomorrow. If you're already subscribed, you know you get that immediately delivered to your email inbox the minute I post it. So you get it in real time. You get it before anybody else does. And you get it uh, sitting and waiting there at your leisure. So go ahead and do that. Uh, Of course, I'm going to watch tonight's game, Washington at UCLA, 7.30. ESPN. So I'll be tuned into that one. And, you know, we talked earlier in the show today with Max Meyer of Caesars. It was fantastic. Like, all the money that's being bet on the Pac-12 teams, it's interesting. Like, you know, my initial theory was this is a Las Vegas sports book, and it makes sense to me that the Pacific time zone games, the Pac-12 games, are important to Caesars. That's why the USC-Oregon State game got so much action last week. A bunch of people betting on Oregon State. Caesars took a bath on that game, including a $110,000 straight bet on Oregon State plus seven that paid off. Uh, tonight's game, Washington at UCLA, has twice as much money wagered on its spread than any other Week 5 college football game. Think about that. Washington at UCLA, more interest in that game. Uh, great stuff with Max Meyer earlier. Grab a podcast of that interview if you missed it. All right. Uh, I want everybody to have a great weekend. Stephen, Sean, have a great weekend. Judah, Peter Sampson, have a great weekend. Uh, All of you out there listening to the show, I want you to have a wonderful, productive weekend. I know a lot of you will be at youth sports games. Uh, You know, I talked earlier in the show about practicing and trying to coach my third grader and how much fun that was. And it just reminded me, like, you know, the joy in sports. Remember that when you're out there at a soccer field or a volleyball match or whatever you're headed to this weekend. Uh, Have a great weekend, everybody. The Bald Face Truth, not here for a long time, just a good time.